everyone, and welcome to Completely Beatles. My name is David Dedrick. I'm Ian Boothby. And today is kind of a sad show, actually, because this is our last last album that we're going to be doing of the Beatles. This, this is the it's Abbey not Road our last episode. show. It's not our last show. We got two more. We got two more bonus episodes happening. But when yeah. we started this show, uh, the idea was to do every Beatles album track yes. by track. Yeah. And at the end of this, we will have done that. We will have completed the initial mission. We we will have yes. Yes, we have. We're not going to be doing the Red and Blue albums or the Love Collection, either Love Collection or Rock and Roll or any of those other kind Unless of you capital. invite us to, say, your house for dinner <laughs> and right. just go, hey, what do you think? In which case, I'm going to tell you, Dave will let you know. That's right. Like, t- or if you see him on the street, yes. he's going to let you know. Like, Dave, for the rest of time, you yes. will be able to talk to him about the Beatles. Yes. So I, don't worry about that. I do have all those records. <laughs> I have rarities. I have them all sitting yeah. there to t- talk about. So but this we is, can talk about But them. this is the last official one. Uh, as always, we mentioned, if you, uh, if you like this show, we do another one called Sneaky Dragon. Uh, which is a more free-form uh, program. But the idea behind this one is uh, Dave's a Beatles fan, I am a casual listener, and uh, that's pretty, basically it. And we're both a couple of goofs. A little bit. I think that that's the kind of sums it up. Yeah, and we're Canadian goofs. Those of you that uh, are calling us Americans, uh, Dave <laughs> actually is American. Like, he's by, uh, what do you call it, by American. That's right, yes. <laughs> that's what you call it. Goodbye, American pie. You were born in America, but you mm-hmm. live in Canada currently. That's okay, right. fair enough. So we're Canadians is what we're saying. Have we got all that out of the way? Good. <laughs> now, those of you that listen to the show regularly know that we start every episode uh, the same way, uh, which is, where are the Beatles at right now? What is the context of this album? What's happening? So sure. what year are we at right now, Dave? Well, we're still in 69. Let's go back. Everybody, set your calendars back <laughs> to 1969. Set them back four days, back to 1969. Back Around four days. Four days? I, I'm not very good at math. <laughs> so so what's interesting with Abbey Road, because it kind of... Oh, by the way, why are we why are we doing Abbey Road one more time uh, okay, inst- sure. instead of uh, Let It Be? Okay, well, although Let It Be obviously came out after Abbey Road... It was recorded before before Abbey Road. So what the Beatles had decided to do was to do uh, this kind of uh, let it all hang out, you know, no overdubs, no trickery, no studio trickery, no double tracking, no, you know, it's just going to be them live in the studio. Even more than that, it was going to be them live on stage uh, doing a concert of all new material. And then when that whole plan, you know, hit the hit the rocks on the shore once it you know just kind of went adrift and crashed uh it's hard sometimes when we have a no swearing rule on this because we're not an explicit (laughs) podcast you want to say other words you know what if you're listening put those words that you know into what we just said okay and so they there's a fan something is striking said fan. that's right and you know so they they didn't know what to do really because the Beatles, although Magical Mystery Tour was in a sense a critical failure, let's put that in quotation marks, that it wasn't popular with a, you know, with the kind of, you know, newspaper writers or or moms and dads. You know, it's still hugely popular with teens and young adults. Once and, again, and we should all like have that. that kind of failure that, in our life. That's right. But for the Beatles, so the Beatles, that wasn't really a failure. I mean, they felt the sting of the the remarks because they'd never experienced that before. Their whole career had been yes, 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 yes from everyone. You know, classical, you know, reviewers in the newspaper were writing glowing reviews of the the way the Beatles used their alien cadences and stuff like that. And then they hit this, you know, the Magical Mystery Tour and everyone's like, no, you know, (laughs) of that particular, you know, so that was the sting. When they did get back, I mean, the idea, I think, for them, in a way, they were challenging the Rolling Stones, who, you know, had, you know, had themselves failed badly 
And I put that in quotation marks because I personally love the uh, Satanic Majesty's Request. But I think even the Rolling Stones would agree that it wasn't their greatest album, that it has some good songs on it and a lot of filler, and that overall the idea was kind of too amorphous. For, you know, they, didn't really gra- they didn't really grasp psychedelia. You know, with, it wasn't their thing, right? Mm-hmm. And so they came back with uh, Beggar's Banquet, which was this very bluesy, raw, rocking album, you know, that had um, the uh, song, that, well, it had the song whose name I can't remember now, the one that goes, ooh, ooh, what? why can't I remember that song? <laughs> please, you know, the pleased to meet you. Yep. Me you know yep. that? Oh, uh, it's a... Uh, 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 you can't remember. Sympathy for the Devil. Sympathy for the Devil, that's right. That was on that album, and uh, Street Fighting Man, I think, is on that album. And so, you know... It was <laughs> I a- am glad you had to do the woo woo. <laughs> Wait, let me shazam that. Do it a couple more times. Sing <laughs> some more. Ah, oh, that's Sympathy for the Devil. Yeah, and... Um, <laughs> You know, so they came back with that album and it was, a, you know, and it was kind of a back to roots, a very raw album. And I think in a way, although the Beatles would have a hard, would, would have had a hard time admitting it, in a way, let the get back idea was to sort of respond to that thing. So, okay. so the Ma- Satanic Majesty's Request was a response to Sgt. Pepper, the Magical Mystery Tour. And then the Beatles came back with this response to Baker's Banquet to kind of challenge the Rolling Stones on this kind of rough and ready music. You know, we can do that too. Well, we couldn't. Because, mm-hmm. you know, unlike the Rolling Stones, who were constantly touring, were always playing live, the Beatles had been ensconced in their little ivory tower, making their music in this very complicated, you know, time-consuming way, and then to take themselves out of that, and then put themselves into this very raw and open situation. It was hard for them, not only to, to do it was hard for them, because they weren't really getting along very well, so it, the difficulties made the, the divisions between them, you know, more obvious, more, yeah. you know, made stronger. But also the fact that when they heard it back, it didn't sound like the White Album. It didn't sound like, you know, their previous polished, perfect little jewels. And so that was hard for them. So they couldn't quite, you know, accept how they actually sounded live, you know, in a way. Just the same way that, you know, if you, you know, if you play live a lot and you hear yourself a lot, that's okay. You can, you can deal with a few clam notes and a few mistakes along the way. And the fact that the audience is screaming and it, you know, there's distractions happening and, and that's all part of being playing live. But if you haven't done it for a long time, if it's been three years or more that you haven't done it, to throw yourself back to it and even just in a studio setting, right? you know, it was very difficult. And then to hear it <laughs> and just the roughness of it was very difficult for them. And so in that way, it was a failure. Yes, I know it had, um, you know, let it be. I know I had long and winding road, and all the songs in there are very good. But to the Beatles, what they conceived of making and what they got were two different things. Right. And so they they came out of that very shaken. You know, and they had nothing to show for it as well. They. Um, How do you mean they had nothing to show for it? Well, there was no album. Mm-hmm. You know, they turned the tapes over to to Glenn Johns uh, in March, and you know, basically, and when they did that, it was kind of a, a admission of a failure. You know, because they were kind of still working. So, so, cause, so the, the, the final, like the final kind of live performance, the studio, let's call it the Apple Studio performance, right. where they did the acoustic songs that came, you know, which would like Let It Be, Long and Winding Road, the two of us, which couldn't be performed in the rooftop concert. That was February 3rd. And then, uh, Glenn Johns and Billy, Billy Preston both had things they had to do in the States. So they went away for a week or so. And then George Harrison had, had had to have a tonsillectomy. And so there was about a three-week gap. But th- to them, they d- hadn't given up on Get Back yet. 
So they were still kind of thinking in terms of Get Back. So they started doing I Want You, She's So Heavy. That was the first song okay. that they started doing that would end up on Abbey Road. It was still thought of as a Get Back song. So um, they they did that. Only, the only thing is, is almost right away they gave up on it. So on February 22nd, they went into the, the studio and did 35 takes of this you know ginormous song. Mm-hmm. And then the next day, they did an edit of, from three different takes into one master. Well, as soon as they did that, they had given up on Get Back. Do you know what I mean? Because they were overdubbing and they were oh, editing. All right, yeah. It wasn't the one idea, performance. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So they'd given up on it that quickly. You know, but still, even John, as late as like April of that year, was still talking in terms of Get Back to journalists. So even he was still thinking in that way. You know, it wasn't until July the first that the Beatles actually asked George Martin to officially produce Abbey Road. So they were still hadn't quite given up on the whole get back thing. So so where get back ends or let it be ends and where Abbey Road started was to the Beatles and even to us kind of, you know, we know it the first song that was recorded, which was I Want You See So Heavy. But for the Beatles, they were still thinking in terms of, right. of get back. They hadn't quite wanted to let go of that project. And because, you know, I mean, even though in March 28th, they gave uh, Glenn Johns the, the tapes and he said, here, you go make an album. That's probably where you can kind of name the end of, of, of Let It Be, Get Back and just say, OK, that's where they really gave up. Now you're calling but, it Let It Be, Get Back. What yeah. was the actual name of the album? Well, Get, it, Get Back was the act, was the name up until it was released as Let It Be. OK, because the you film, keep calling it that. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. Because for because up until let's say up until the movie was titled as Let It Be, the album would have been Get Back, mm. you know, and it was only because Let It Be was, it, it's kind of hard to describe because there was sort of a change of, of order at, at at Apple. Like up until that time, Paul McCartney, for like the last three years, I mean, after Brian died, for three years, Paul McCartney was basically the driving force of the Beatles. Not only was he the musical director, he was also their manager in a way, the de facto manager, even though everything was decided as a group. And all the decisions were decided on unanimously. It was Paul who was making the choices of what they were deciding, if you know what I mean. So he was coming to them and saying, we could do this. What do you think of that? And everyone would say, yeah, that sounds good. Or no, I don't like it. Or let's talk it through. But it was still him driving it. You know, John wasn't coming in and saying, let's do a, a crazy movie on, with a bus. You know, he wasn't, that was Paul. You know, or, or, or saying, let's do an album where we play live and we record it. And, you know, those were Paul decisions that the others went along with sometimes grudgingly, sometimes willingly, but they went along with those decisions. And then on February the 4th, so the day after the rooftop perf- or the, the not rooftop performance, the studio performance, uh, George, yeah, George, John and Ringo hired Ellen Klein to be their manager. So in fact, saying to Paul, you're fired. Okay. And how'd that go over for uh, Paul? Well, not well at all, because Paul did, Ellen Klein had a bad reputation. He had a good and a bad reputation. He had a good reputation as a tough negotiator who could get you money out of record companies mm-hmm. and could find, you know, he was very good at finding royalties that somehow got lost by the record company. And, oh, was that where that was? Oh, we didn't know there was $450,000 sitting there for you. Gee whiz, I guess we'll have to pay it. But, you know, so he was very good at that. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, he was kind of a shark. And when you got into the water, uh, I don't, you've seen the Ruddles, right? Yeah. I can't help but think of that. When that's you're right. This. When John Belushi's character in that, it's kind of that, that's who that's Alan Klein, right? So he did he did wear a turtleneck all the time, and he was a very tough person. When he came into Apple Records, pretty much everyone got fired from Apple Records once wow. he came in or okay. quit. Yeah, because the atmosphere changed so much. So there's this you know sudden freezing over of this previous like you know the what are they, I can't remember. Someone wrote a book about it. 
Uh, it was called the Something Rather Cocktail Party. Richard DeLillo, who is the house hippie at Apple Records. So if you have a place that has a house hippie, you know if a, if a really hard line guy comes in, it's not going to be the same anymore, uh -huh. you know? And so, yeah, a lot of people left. Peter Asher, for instance, uh, who is the direct guy, who's the A&R, uh, you know, sort of uh, artist and repertoire uh, manager who brought James Taylor to Apple. He left almost right away as soon as Alan Klein came. He's like, this is not what I want to be. Like, so I'll get out while the going's good and yeah. I'm going to take James Taylor with me. And so what Paul's response was then was to hire his father-in-law or soon-to-be father-in-law. I'm not exactly sure of the timeline when he married Linda. Okay. But he hired Lee Eastman. And so Eastman, uh, Eastman and his son came and they became Paul's managers. So Paul had one set of representation and the three others had a different set of representation. Well, previously, all the decisions were made unanimously. So this was a huge rift in, in the mm -hmm. Beatles. And that suddenly they're on separate sides, like completely separate sides of what's happening. Um, so uh, on, on May 8th, so this is quite a bit later, still um, during sessions. Uh, I think they weren't doing sessions for Abbey Road. They were doing like insert record, like doing uh, edits and stuff for, for the Let It Be album. And, and, uh, the three, they signed a new agreement with, with, with Alan Klein, with Abco and giving Klein 20% of their, of their, of their, you know, whatever they made, he got 20% of it, which was what, got, which was what Brian got. Okay. But Paul's point was, why are we giving this person 20%? He's not Brian, you know, and he other people. He didn't do all the things Brian did. That's yeah. right. You know, Brian took us from where we were and made us into what we There's are now. There's a good argument for him having that 20%. And that What's was the argument here. Yeah. That, and, you know, and so the argument here, yeah, is what, you know, so why are we paying him 10% more? Tradition. But 10% more than we, than everyone else is paying their managers. Yeah. And to Paul's other point was with my, with Eastman and company, I only pay them for when they do work. They're lawyers. So they just charge you for hours. They don't charge you a 10% fee so you're not constantly paying on whatever you earn you're just paying them for what they're doing if you need to negotiate a contract they bill you for the time they spend negotiating the contract they don't bill you for the months or they're in mexico or whatever you know so so to him it made no sense to to make this big change and uh so but the other three the problem was is that without unity klein couldn't do everything that he was promising he was going to do for the beatles so on May 9th, the Beatles came in and they just came down hard on Paul at one of the insert recording sessions. And they're just like, you got to sign this agreement. You have to sign with Alan Klein. And he's like, no, I won't. And like, you know, really harsh words were spoken. It was a big fight. Yeah. And he just refused to sign. He actually never did sign with Alan Klein. And I, and to sort of go forward in a way, in a, I think Paul kind of saved the Beatles by not, by not doing that. Because Alan Klein, like I say, was a real shark. You know, he represented the Rolling Stones. And it's really strange that all of the Rolling Stones 60s albums, like all of their London recordings, you know, from what the first album, Introducing the Rolling Stones, all the way to, um, uh, not Sticky Fingers, but Let It Bleed, all the way to Let It Bleed, are all owned by Abco. The Rolling Stones don't own those albums. Alan Klein owns those albums. So how would that happen that you sign a, a manager to manage your band and he ends up owning your albums. Doesn't seem very good, does it? Nope. That seems like the 20% was more than you bargained for. Yeah. You know, so I think, so in fact, Mick Jagger wanted... It seems like he should be protecting you from him. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And in fact, Mick Jagger wanted to talk to the Beatles about Alan Klein. And he set up a meeting with the Beatles. But John told Alan Klein about the meeting. Uh, he... So Alan Klein showed up 
and was there. And so Mick felt he couldn't say any, you know, what he wanted yeah. to. And so it was just pretty much a, uh, just fizzled out. It was just a, dry, uh, you know, wet fuse. And so uh, th- that was that. So they signed with him and, and what, Paul would What do you sign. think John's motivation was there? I think John's motivation was... Was he on board with the... Was he buying what he was selling? Yeah. I think, you know, the Beatles weren't... Con- the Beatles were... Con- like, the Beatles were getting lots of money. Yeah. But what they became obsessed with was what they weren't getting. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So rather than thinking, I got millions and millions of dollars from merchandising in the United States. They were thinking, I lost millions and millions of dollars on merchandising in the United States. Or... You know, Brian didn't negotiate a good enough royalty. Actually, negotiated a great royalty for them in '67 when he re- renegotiated for yeah. them. For what other bands and what other artists at that time were getting, Brian re- negotiated a fantastic. So, but I'm thinking ro- like when John, when John uh, said, sat down that, uh, hey, we're having this meeting. Yeah. What his, I'm trying to think inside his head. Is he like, oh, if uh, if Mick talks to the other guys, they're not going to want to be part of this, mm-hmm. and yeah, I'm going to exactly. lose it all. That's right. So I'm going to sabotage it with this. Exactly. Yeah, it's a weird thing because you think like otherwise. Well, if this guy's got some information about him, mm-hmm. that's just going to benefit you in the long run. What can this? What can this hurt? But now, nah, I guess, I guess there's that. That's a shame. It's a really strange thing. I mean, Ellen Klein, like George Harrison, credits Ellen Klein with him being able to buy his beloved uh, Friar Park, which was this huge Victorian folly, this huge mansion that was built by this by this uh, uh, English industrialist. Uh-huh. And it was, and you know, Klein got him the money together, and you know, and Harrison was able to buy this fantastic pile for himself. At the same time, it was Klein who siphoned off all the money from the concert for Bangladesh, and so none of the money earned by that concert or the album or anything else, to, the film or anything to do with it, went to actually help the people. Oh, I had no idea about this. That's for, yeah, horrible. Yeah. So I mean, now has this guy? Sorry, to, to skip ahead a little mm-hmm, bit, sure. did this guy ever get his comeuppance? He did. He was actually charged with uh, tax fraud of some sort and spent some time. I don't know if he actually spent time in jail or if he died before. Uh, well, it was still being appealed and going through all the right. process, but it wasn't until quite later that he uh, finally. I, so I, you know, but he, yeah, his whole career was, uh, you know, he was he was very much, he was very much a, uh, you know, very much about himself. And well, yeah. this is the thing: is like if you want to steal money from someone, uh, make a big deal out of like I'm giving you a, you get a million dollars while you steal yeah. five million dollars. That's right. Yeah. And look over here. House. Look at this yeah. million dollar house. Look at it. Look at it. Isn't that beautiful? You go inside. You relax. <laughs> I'll go over here for a bit. Yeah. And uh, yeah. what are you what are you putting in that uh, back of that van? Uh, some money. Just putting some money and driving it away. Exactly. That's that's a shame. It so is. Paul, so Paul, you think uh, made the better financial choice? At that time, well, I think if we look at Paul, I mean, Paul made some mistakes as as a you know acting as a manager for the Beatles. I would never deny that. Right. I mean, Apple was obviously a terrible decision to mm-hmm. make. You just cannot make an unguided business. Can't just put together an unguided business. It's, Good intentions, it's, and, yeah. You know, you put your faith right. into something, and you know, yeah, and you, you and then humans get involved, not, and right. things that's are different. Exactly yeah. right. And then they start ripping you off left right. and right, and and things are disappearing out of it. You know, you and I are aware of other industries like the comic book industry, and this similar things have happened in other industries that's where right. we've gone like, oh, everyone, let's trust the artists and let things work. Well, we'll we'll, <laughs> get, well, we'll give them money before they finish the project, yeah. and we'll yeah. see how the that's right. So. Yeah. yeah, it's it, it seems to be both ways, right? Like you're like, you know, the the bo- the man is ripping us off, right? Left and right, you know, they're signing us to our ten percent contracts, signing us to our work for hire contracts. You know, we can't trust them. Get rid of them. We're just going to be all artists working together. 
complete pancake. You know, this is yeah. This it's like either you've got the dragon that's burning you to death, or you've gotten rid of the dragon, uh, and and then you light yourself on fire. Like one of the two is going to happen. You know, <laughs> exactly. either way. So that was one problem they were having, and the other problem. Now, this is kind of going to be kind of confusing. So if you have any questions while I'm talking, everybody, uh, get out a piece of paper yes, and start do. writing this down. This please is do. Uh, if you got graph paper, it will really help. Because what? So what was happening simultaneously to the recording Abbey Road? So I want you to imagine that they're, you know, singing something. They're playing Octopus's Garden. They're doing their guitar overdubs ad nauseum for I Want You, She's So Heavy. Meanwhile, they're involved in this long, drawn-out drama concerning the ownership of their own music, John and Paul. Okay. Now, this Northern Songs is what I'm talking about. Because when they became, when they first started, they had no idea what they're doing. Brian Epstein had no idea what he's doing. You know, he went to... He wanted to sign up with an American publishing company, and George Martin said, well, why would you go to an American company? Just go to Ardmore and Beechwood. They're British, and they have American ties. Because the thing is, one thing we don't understand nowadays is what was super important in music in those days wasn't the quality of what you made. What was important was the expertise of the person plugging your music to the radio to your your song sheets to to you know to other artists to, to perform that was where you made your money okay you know and that the, so when you put out your record your record just didn't go out and just sit in a box mm-hmm. you know it had it went into the hands of this guy who was a was that was his job he was a song plugger and right. he had contacts all through the entertainment industry he had contacts in radio he had contacts in music in you know music music business now your other way of making money would be touring correct or is or is it different than today because today where most bands make their money isn't record sales because yeah. you can't yeah uh, but they make their money from tours Tour, touring would have been a good would have been would have been good business too but, but i mean the beatles weren't the beatles were touring but i mean in those days you're you weren't playing like huge con- i mean nowadays people yeah. make Lots of money playing concerts because they're going around and playing to 30, 40,000 people right. in giant arenas. And then they move on to another arena and set up and play to those people. And they're charging $60 a ticket. And See the Rolling Stones. Yeah. We were yeah, just discussing. Yeah. Sure. Right. You know, in those days, they were going club to club in a van with their gear. Understood. So they're not making yeah. the same kind of dough, right? So, and then you want to get people to come and see you play concerts. So how you do that is get your music on the radio. Right. Without that song plugger, there's no one there to do it. So Brian took his music, took the music to um, to Ardmore and Beechwood, and they did public. They did. I don't know if they published those songs. I think they they weren't very helpful to Brian. And so, and so then uh, Dick James was a friend of of George Martin, and he was a, he had started his own music company called Dick James Music. He used to be a singer. Mm-hmm. He sang for George Martin. He was a, he was a parlophone artist. And what is a parlophone? Parlophone was the record label. Very good. I Beatles thought it was some to. sort of uh, <laughs> uh, instrument. I had no idea. That's fine. It's been a while. It's been yep. a while since we talked about Parlophone. Some sort of French microphone. <laughs> and so, and so, um, yeah, so Martin, he, you know, introduced Dick James to Brian Epstein. And then Dick James did kind of a trick to Brian Epstein. Because Brian Epstein said, well, what can you do for me? He said, I'll tell you what I can do. He picked up his phone. He called the record show, Thank Your Lucky Stars. And he booked the Beatles right then. Because he had a contact there. Mm-hmm. So... He just made this, and so Brian was so impressed that he just basically gave. It, it must be like this every time. Every time, that's right. I've never heard of any yeah. kind of business like this before. Exactly. Yeah, right. Very you have good. to remember that Brian was from Liverpool, Aww, right? That's adorable. So he's like this country bumpkin. To but it's true. That's, I know it's just sad. <laughs> <laughs> and so, and so Dick James, he just gave Dick James, please, please me, and asked me why. He said, "Here, you have them. You know, you you take these. I'm going to give you the." 
because I think so I guess Love Me Do must have belonged to Ardmore and Beechwood then but anyway so he gave basically gave Please Please Me and, and Love Me Do to Dick James and so then Dick James being a smart person he said okay these guys are really talented there's some long-term talent here so what I need to do is hitch my wagon to these stars mm -hmm. so what he could have done is he could have signed them to Dick James Music paid them 10% this was standard you got they got 10% royalty rate and he would get 90% mm -hmm. he didn't he went to them and he said what we're gonna do is we're gonna start your own music company it's gonna be called Northern Music because you're from the north get it they're like okay and what we're gonna do is it'll have 98 shares and we're gonna divide these equally and when I say equally, it wasn't really equally. Because the way it was divided was 49 shares between John, Paul, and Brian, or Nems. So uh, John got 19 shares, Paul got 20, Nems got 10, and then Dick James got 49. Totally equal. Divided absolutely right. equally. It's the old one for you, one for me, and that's two for you, one, two for me, three for you, one, two, three for me. Yeah. But, but this is where he was smart, because he was appointed, or appointed himself, manager of Northern Songs for 10, for 10 years. Uh -huh. So that would last until February of 1973 for 10% of the gross. So that's that's pretty fair, actually. So he's only taking 10%. He's not taking 90. He's taking 10. Okay. So when he signed Elton John and uh, Bruni Taupin, the second time he struck gold, he signed them to Dick James Music, and they got 10%, and he got 90. So he didn't do the same thing. He didn't so he else. did all right. But the reason he did this, like George Martin suggested, the reason he did this was because... Doing that, rather than having a three-year short-term contract, he was able to sign them for a 10-year contract. And there's, mm -hmm. they wouldn't kick up a fuss because he's only getting 10%. He's not taking 90. We, you know, all right, so. It's what you call the long con. <laughs> it's a, you know, the other, and the other thing that pays off there, I guess, is like, you know, you got the Beatles. So mm -hmm. whoever you're approaching after that point, it's like, yeah, and then I work with the Beatles. Oh, yeah. well, I'll sign up with you. So now John and Paul's royalties didn't go into Northern Songs. Because that was divided between Dick James and... So their royalties then went into a company called Lenmac Enterprises. So that was owned 40% by John, 40% by Paul, and 20% by Brian Ordnems. Okay. Once again, Brian's 20%. Only... So now that makes sense, right? Also, Dick James started uh, a North American one called Macklin. So there was Lenmac, which was the British yeah. one, and Macklin was the American one, which was like Northern Songs. Same thing, 98 shares, you know, 49 for him divided between the rest. You're writing all this down, everyone, right? Okay, good. So let's jump ahead a little bit. Now, the Beatles are hugely successful. They're making tons of money. Most successful band in the world. Their tax Rock band, at least. Their tax bracket is now 83% of their money goes to the tax man. Mm -hmm. They're getting 17% if they pay Even their the taxes. Even the song Tax Man, most of that song <laughs> goes to the tax man, That's right. ironically. That's right. They only get the end back. <laughs> so um, what to counter this, what they decided to do was to life a crime <laughs> float no was to issue northern songs as a public company so they issued stocks okay they issued five million shares all right and by doing this the trend any any of the transactions associated with this flotation were not subject to capital gains so they were tax-free now the problem was oh before before i tell you what the problem was they signed a new <laughs> agreement with northern songs in 1965 so they formed a new company called macklin music Macklin, bracket, music, bracket, limited. Owned 40% by Paul, 40% by John, and 20% by Nems, by Brian Epstein. Macklin assigned full copyright of the songs to Northern Songs. So Northern Songs is still the copyright holder of their, of their music. The publishing royalties were split three ways. Dick James' music got 10%, Macklin got 55%, and Northern Songs got 35%. Now, a year later, John and Paul sold Landmac Enterprises. This was the royalty, the royalty filtering shell corporation yeah. 
that was sold to Northern Songs for £365,000 for, for each of them. There's a lot of money. The only problem was now, now three years of their music belonged to Northern Songs. Entire, that was the royalties, right? That's where the royalties yeah. went. So the company that got the royalties for those songs was now in Northern Songs, not in their ownership. So when they lost Northern Songs, they lost the first three years of all their songwriting. And that's still today. Yeah. The, Paul, nor, neither Paul nor John or his estate will ever receive any royalties for the songs they recorded in the first three years of the Beatles. Unless they buy that company. Unless, say, Paul Unless McCarty bought that was company. was able to now. get that company, which is never going to happen. But, um, so yeah, so anything. Can't Buy Me Love. You know, I Want to Hold Your Hand. Think of, you know, let's say there's seven songs per album for the first right. three albums, or first two albums, and then 14 songs the next one. So that's 28 songs, and then 35 on the next one. And so we're all, I think, probably up to help by the time you, they're moving out of this contract. Wow. So that's all those songs I get no money for. Right. Yesterday, all that stuff doesn't belong now, to Now, was me. this uh, the song, was this the um, company that uh, Michael Jackson owned for a period of time? Yeah, there? that's right. Yeah. That's right. That would have been nice if he just gave it to uh, Paul, <laughs> gave it to his friend. Mm -hmm. Oh, well. Oh, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of... Uh, not very nice behavior. Now, now when Paul, this. I don't know if he does, but if he does, or Ringo uh, does a song from that era, they got to give the uh, royalties to that company. Well, it doesn't. They don't give it. It just yeah, it's paid out. It's paid out. Yeah. yeah. So Paul does one of his song, his own mm -hmm. songs, mm -hmm. and he's got to pay for yeah. it because he doesn't own it. So he's probably much happier doing Hey Jude than he's than happy than doing as that. he seems to do. And way happier doing Jet than Hey Jude. <laughs> um, so that's all his J songs. Now Dick James appointed himself managing director. He appointed his friend Charles Silver chairman, and together they owned 1,875,000 shares, or 37.5% of Northern Songs. Okay. Paul and John each held 750,000 shares, or 15% of the company. Right. George held 40,000 shares, shares, that's 0.8% of the company, and same with Ringo. They both had about the same. Now, and when it was going to be floated, George was persuaded to sign to Northern Songs for three years. As well, not three years, would have been maybe four years then? Just to sweeten it. Yeah. So, you know, you're not only getting John and Paul, but you're also getting George. Look at that, everybody. <laughs> this is what we're talking about here. Maybe even a song from Ringo. I'm not saying that'll be great, but it's a song from Ringo. It's Ringo. Everyone likes the guy. Everyone likes Ringo. So, because George had already formed his own uh, music publishing company called Harris Songs. And so he owned eighty percent. He owned eighty percent of that company. Bit of a corny name. I gotta give it uh, Harris Songs. What about uh, what about Ringo's startling music? I prefer that to Harris songs. <laughs> so, but George owned eighty percent of Harris songs, and Nems or Brian owned twenty percent, the usual twenty percent. Okay. Right? And so, yeah, he was. Oh, yeah, he was signed to Northern Songs until March '68. That's why only Northern Songs, you know, kind of a little bitter, bitter song. Now, the thing was is that now, if John and Paul were thinking like in this way, they own their songs. They were so they were so deluded because. Their song was literally owned by thousands of people. Like anyone who bought stock in Northern Songs owned part of the songs that Paul and John were writing. Yeah. And the problem was is that it wasn't owned by thousands of people. What happened was over time, corporations who wanted a chunk of the Beatles would, were buying up chunks of shares and cornering share, you know. And so the worst one was this uh, company called ATV, which was owned, owned by this man named Sir Lou Grade, who was like kind of the kind of the Ellen Klein of British music. Okay. You know, his, his thing was buy, buying up publishing companies and just, you know, getting what he could. Now, what he did was he started to, started to acquire, you know, Northern songs on the side, buying up stocks and stuff like that, buying shares from people who were selling them. Mm -hmm. 
And he was good friends with Dick James because Dick James was signed to his talent agency when he was a singer. So he and Dick James had a pretty good relationship. Unfortunately, the Beatles did not have such a great relationship anymore with Dick James. They felt some grievance against him because they weren't, they felt they weren't getting paid what they should get paid for their songs. And rather than deal with it in a mature manner, they dealt with it like schoolboys and just sort of insulted him behind his back. Pushed him in the mud. And <laughs> pushed him in the mud. And, you know, he was kind of the avuncular, unwanted uncle that came to visit every once in a while and brought them cufflinks for their birthday, <laughs> even though they had lots of cufflinks from him already. You know what I mean? Like, he was just that person that was kind of the awkward visit that came every once in a yeah. while. And he'd come in and tell them how much he liked Paul songs because they sold and John's were okay. And if John, if you would that, stop doing crazy well. stuff, yeah. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. And so... um in any situation like that, always pick favorites. And the other problem for Dick James was he was the managing director of a company whose breadwinners were being arrested for drug possession, were getting in punch-ups and quitting the band, were leaving their wives and marrying a Japanese artist, were going around the world in a bag. You know, they were doing all these things that were causing the stock to sort of fluctuate and look very uncertain. Mm -hmm. And so what Dick James did was he sold, he and Charles Silver sold all their stock to Lou Grade. So rather than going to the Beatles first and giving them an off and letting, giving them first yeah, chance option, to buy out, yeah. he didn't. He went behind their backs, totally betrayed them, <sighs> sold them down the river, giving great about 35% of Northern songs. Now, at the same time, Brian Epstein had died and the Epstein family were looking at huge death duties, huge death taxes with Brian Epstein's death. So they needed to sell NEMS. They, none of them had any interest in running a talent agency, which is essentially what it was, with, right. for, you know, outside of the Beatles. And so Clive Epstein and Queenie Epstein, uh, Brian's brother and mother, they were, wanted to sell, um, they wanted to sell the NEMS. Now, they would have been perfectly happy to sell to Apple. The problem with Apple was not only was the co company in turmoil, but it had two management groups competing against each other, fighting each other and insulting each other and causing all this conflict. And so instead of do, instead of selling to the Apple, they sold to an investment trust. And now, so now, did they try to sell the Apple first? And it they talked to them about it, but it just they just weren't comfortable, okay. and they just but they went ah whatever we'll just sell. So they sold fourteen uh, percent of the shares. The, the shares went to um, went into this investment trust, and they got twenty five percent of the Beatles' royalties up until nineteen seventy six. Now that would have been a substantial amount of money. That's a substantial amount of money, and yeah. I'm sure the Beatles would have loved to have got that because so now that's out there, and so now there is a consortium of of people who are who were going in between, between Lou Grade and the Beatles camp, you know, we've got this 14%, you've got 35%, you've got close to that. Uh -huh. One of you, whoever can get this from us, is going to have a controlling interest in Northern. Right. And so it was going back and forth. Alan Klein was working on it. Lee Eastman were working. Everyone was, you know, they had a merchant bank behind them. They had lots of money. And then it started to fall apart bit by bit. Paul refused to uh, put up his shares as collateral for a loan for to, to buy stuff. Uh... And then John, you know, after a while, he just got bored and tired of it all. And then he just said to the press one day, he just said, I'm tired. Um, what did he say? I have to, I have to, sure, sure. Look I have for to the, find uh, the exact quote. quote. No, listen. He said, I'm we not. Ca we, oh, care, we care about authenticity here, so take okay. your time and find the quote. So he said, I'm not going to be effed around by men in suits sitting on their fat arses in the city. Once he now, said that. Now, did he say effed around or did he say the other thing? Oh, he said the actual word. Oh, very good. Now, believe it or not, some people took that badly. <laughs> and so they sold the consortium sold their shares to Lou Grade. So now he had fifty percent of Northern songs, and the Beatles lost their chance to ever own their own music, and that was it for them. So, so I just want you to think while we're talking about Abbey Road, this was all going on 
while they were recording. You know, often stuff was, often they took breaks to deal with these problems and the endless meetings and going back and forth. And that's when uh, uh, Here Comes the Sun was written by George when he, just, he skipped one of the meetings one day and just went and sat in Eric Clapton's garden <laughs> and just took a break from all this pressure and all this anguish. And, you know, the relief was so great that he just wrote the song spontaneously sitting in this garden. Yeah, that almost makes it worthwhile. <laughs> I guess so. Almost. If they had now, have got now, it, that would have been when they went on to their solo albums later, were they still beholden to any of these contracts or obligations? Yeah, that's why a lot of songs written by uh, John Lennon and Paul McCartney post-Beatles were credited to like, Yoko Ono and John Lennon and Linda McCartney and Paul McCartney. Okay. Even though it's highly suspect that either of them had a lot to do with the composing of these songs yeah but just it took them out and let them put the songs in their own under their own publishing rather than under northern songs right so like currently they're i mean they're 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 uh, the surviving beatles i mean ring well when yeah. george was alive too were they free of these contracts like later on Did oh they yeah eventually yeah. break free all right yeah yeah northern songs only up to 73 okay so when 73 came they were free of that and they could publish under their own uh you know Mom, paul you know mpls i think is paul mccartney's isn't it some kind of name like that or John Lennon's could publish under his. The only problem was is that, you know, what they did in the 70s was way less remunerative than what they did as Beatles. Mm -hmm. I mean, they never reached those heights again. Mm -hmm. I mean, Paul was a very cagey businessman and did a lot of smart, Paul made a lot of smart decisions. Paul has probably done okay since. Oh, he's know? done very well. and Especially, I'd say, his collaborations with, like, Michael, Michael Jackson and that kind of thing. That must have made him some coin. I mean, because that was... Oh, everything made him coin. He I know, I know. Stuff. But this, that was, like, the most successful did a, album. He did a Bond theme. He did a... Yeah. He did great... He, did, he had, did top singles lots of times yeah. but i just mean that in terms of like compared to the beatles though right there's a big difference yep i mean well there's a we'll talk about it in a bit but there was a, a lawsuit between john lennon and another guy and like they're talking about sales for john lennon's albums and it might have only been in america that they're talking but like walls and bridges sold four hundred fifty thousand copies that's not very much you think for a beetle mm -hmm. four hundred fifty thousand copies of an album in the united states that's nothing compared to what he would have been selling as a beetle mm -hmm. You know, he he's really lucky. Like uh, Yoko Ono was actually a very shrewd business businesswoman, and so she she kind of ran the ran the did the money stuff for for John Lennon and invested his money very wisely as well. Mm -hmm. And uh, he wasn't suffering. Now, either, when you but, say he bought that uh, large piece of property, uh, did he own George Harrison? Yeah. Uh, no, no, no. When jo wasn't John Lennon? You were saying no, bought... George Harrison. Yeah. Oh, okay. All yeah, right. Yeah. Well, when you when you own the pro at least you own the property then like outright he didn't yeah yeah okay good I just want them to be okay oh, they're all right well George was fine, more than fine we'll talk about that too. okay good so okay so in spite of all these problems you know the Beatles could have just and I mean George Martin and a lot of people around them seriously thought that get back let it, slash let it be was the end like they just thought okay this is you know there's no way they can recover like mm -hmm. the fighting and all the hatred that went into this it's done. But the Beatles themselves did not want this to be like the last word on the Beatles. So, you know, they wanted they wanted to go out with something, you know, something meaningful and something impressive. So they carried on. They didn't just let the get back session. And that's kind of that's kind of why it's blurry in a way, too, is the fact that they just did not they didn't stop. They just kept going like we got to make something out of this. Let's keep going. Yeah. You know, and then they realized at a certain point, OK, we need some direction. We need some guidance. So let's bring George in. Let's really bring George in. Let's not bring him halfway, and let's not bring George in so he's he's monitoring us, and we're making our own decisions and being bossy bosses. Now, was George okay with being brought back? He was, but he made some demands. You know, he said, mm -hmm. okay, this is how it's going to be. I'm going to be producing. You are not producing. So what I say goes. And if you don't want to do it that way, then I will not, no, I'm not going to produce you. Like, I don't, I don't have to do this. So, you know, 
And so they, but they agreed to it. Like they really wanted to make this work. And so, uh, yeah. So let's. So I guess that's from there. Unless you and want to talk about our, that is our context. Unless you want to talk about the album cover, or we can do that at the end. If you no, want. no, go for the album cover. What? What about it? Okay. Well, just. I mean, okay. It's Besides the famous Pepper, album cover. It's probably the most iconic album right cover now, ever made, right? somebody is there recreating it. Recreating right now. Yeah. That is a tough street to cross right now because someone seen, is always taking a picture. Have you seen the movie About Time? Yes, I have. There's a deleted scene. It wasn't in the film, but there's a deleted scene where the, his wife is giving birth and he makes a mistake of driving down Abbey Road to get to the hospital. And then they're just stuck in all this traffic as people are crossing the, the street and taking pictures of themselves. So then he runs up to try and you know move these people along and then he ends up helping them. And he's even posing in the picture when his <laughs> wife comes heavily in labor, <laughs> holding her stomach. He's trying to you know work things, get things moving. It's quite good. It's a good scene. Sounds good. But um, yeah, so uh, it was the picture was taken by this guy named Ian McMillan, based on some sketches from Paul, because they had a few ideas. One, they were going to call the album Everest, and the idea was they would fly to Mount Everest and get their picture taken there. Okay. But you can imagine how the Beatles felt about having to fly to Everest to have some right. pictures taken for an album. And he was going to do it barefoot anyway. He was like, <laughs> I don't want to be barefoot on Everest. That sounds like a terrible that's, idea. That's how right. about we do it just over there? That's right. How about instead? So. Now, I've heard early in the morning, but then I was reading that the pictures were taken at 10.30. So, I don't know, early in the morning for the Beatles, can you, maybe? Can you tell by where the sun is and the shadows? <laughs> that, that's probably uh, that's the only determinable. Way. I would have thought earlier, because you'd want the road to be kind of empty. Mm-hmm. So, you come in at 10.30, and of course, that it's a busy the, road. That is the nice thing, though, about you go to uh, England, and uh, if it's morning time, like early morning, yeah. no one's there. Yeah. Yeah. Like, surprisingly so. Much yeah. more so than in North America. But in this case, it was very busy. So that a passing policeman actually helped them. He stopped traffic oh, for them. Oh, nice. So they could take a picture. They just did it really quickly. Like, he moved the stepladder. Yep. He put a stepladder on the road, climbed to the stepladder, took the picture, climbed back down, moved the stepladder, and basically it took us a few shots. Yeah. And he took one from a, a little bit higher as well. He took a few different Are angles. the alternate uh, takes available anywhere? I'm sure you can see them. I'm sure you can find them if you look up uh, alternate. Well, it's a, really good, uh, it's a really good cover. I think we can all admit that. And so, Paul has said clues. On uh, this cover. Okay, because at this time they still had the uh, Paul McCartney's dead rumor. That's uh, right, floating still around. going around. So John's white suit was a mark of respect to the deceased Paul. <laughs> okay, and Paul's bare feet is a well-known symbol of death in Greece and in the mafia. All right, I don't know if that's true or not. I think it's, it's mostly they're just made-up facts. Now the license plate. The license plate said like M blah blah twenty-eight IF. Right. And what that was was Paul would have been, would have been twenty-eight <laughs> if he had lived. Right. The fact was that he was 27. So, yes, he would have been 28 eventually if he had lived, but at yeah. that time, he was 27. So, it's all kind of really silly, silly right. things. But everyone had fun with it. So, I guess we'll talk about the first single then. Let's go on to <laughs> okay. the music. Let's leave the history behind. Well, here's the other thing, too. Now that people's uh, heads if, are spinning. What, what are they doing on the album cover, Dave? They're crossing over to the other side, crossing which is side. traditionally what you say. Oh, but only all of them were, so I don't know if that counts. Ah, so I maybe see. They're, well, they're, uh, they're, they're his friend. Over. They're, they're his friends. Right. They're taking your friend him. over who's got no shoes. They're guiding him over. Okay, so now are we doing the single first or yeah, are we doing the, do the singles first? All right. Because they actually came out before the album. All right. So, um, what are we looking at today for singles? Or is it just a single? It's just a single because really this is the only single that came out around Abbey Road that was, that was separate from the album. Something backed with Come Together was released when the album came out. Right. But actually didn't do that well. I think as people were kind of like, eh, it's already on the album. Why do I need to buy the single? Mm-hmm. And the Beatles traditionally didn't, you know, uh, cannibalize their albums for singles. It was really Ellen Klein's idea to do that because he came out of the American music scene where right. that was more tra- a tradition. <laughs> so he was like, no, you gotta, you gotta release a 
something. This is a great song. You know, people got to hear it, so we'll do it as a single. Blah blah blah. So they did, did well in America, but just in I Britain. can't not see him as John Belushi. <laughs> it just once you've seen that in the yeah. rent. By the way, if anyone there has not seen the Rettles yet, uh, all you need is cash. Do it now. Yeah. Like, wait till you hear the end of this and then do it because it's fantastic. Great show. So, uh, the single was A. Now, is it double A side? It was or? no single A side. Single A side, okay. So, it was the ballad of John and Yoko. Oh, okay. Very and good. so, uh, let's just say that. Autobiographical song? Let's just, yeah, encouraged by Yoko, John's writing had become more and more self centered. Mm -hmm. You know, it was more and more about himself. And he began to believe, and I think she began to maybe reinforce his belief that all art is self referential. He felt that no art can be, you know, can reference something that you don't understand. And the only thing that you can understand is yourself. So thus, all art has to be about yourself. Uh, okay. So Disagree, but we can move on. <laughs> now, eventually, these types of songs would fall outside of the, the Beatles' ability to present them and still be like the Beatles. Right. You know what I mean? And so kind of the final straw was Paul's ref refusal to record Cold Turkey and release that as a single. And so what... John did then was form a band called the Plastic Ono Band, and they recorded Cold Turkey. And Plastic Ono Band was basically a, just a collective name for whoever happened to be working with John Lennon at the time. Okay. So, for instance, on Cold Turkey, it was Ringo on drums, uh, Klaus Wurman, their friend who did the cover for Revolver on bass, and Eric Clapton on guitar. Right. He just got together whoever he could, who was at loose ends, come on and just help me do this song. And we'll be the Plastic Ono Band. And same when he went to Toronto and played live. Did the, uh, That's, you know, Alan White on drums, Eric Clapton on guitar, and Klaus Vermin on bass. You know, and they rehearsed on the plane on the way over, you know, just because they didn't know any music together. So, and that's, so, you know, that it was just kind of like whoever was around gets to be in the Plastic Ono Band. And so that was a place for songs like Cold Turkey and, and things like that that had no, and uh, Give Peace a Chance. It did, just didn't fit into weren't Beatles songs. You know, they were John solo songs or John singing about himself songs. Now, would you consider this a Beatles song? Well, in a way it is, in a way it isn't. Because the funny thing about the song is because uh, John had to do it that very minute, kind of taking a page out of Paul's, you know, own creative impatience. But because it was the sort of diary song, it really couldn't wait to come out. And so John's like, I got to do it. I got to do it right now. Yeah. Ringo's still doing Magic Christian, The Magic Christian, and George is away on holiday so the song is actually just John and Paul playing all the instruments. Oh, is that right? That's right. There's no George. There's no George and Ringo on it. So Paul played drums, bass, piano, maracas, wow. and John played the lead guitar and the acoustic guitar for it. And yeah, they just got together. And this I mean, this is after this is after get the get back This is after they've been arguing and fighting with each other and you know being silent and and moody with each other and walking silently out of the room and things like that. And now they're in the studio together doing this song. It actually went really smoothly. They, mm -hmm. they just it has worked really well, really, you know, and it's there's lots of laughter and lots of fun. It's a fun, it's a fun song. Like it's a, it's it's it it goes along at a nice uh, a nice pace, and it's uh, it's weird hearing such a blatantly autobiographical song. Yeah, yeah. you know, but it's uh, I could see how it would really connect with with fans. And well, John was so grateful that he he credited "Give Peace a Chance" to Lennon McCartney as a thank you oh, for doing that's that nice. song. Yeah, well, yeah, I'm really glad to hear that. Cool. Yeah, yeah. It's a it's a it is a good. It is a really good song. Is there any other song? Would you say a Beatles song that's as autobiographical? Not a Beatles song because John stopped doing songs of that sort. The only one that would be close would be um, the uh, one 
where he's singing. Oh, gee, now I can't remember. Is I mean, it, they sing about feelings, obviously, with something like "Let It Be." But yeah, no, no. no but there's a song in "Get Back" or "Let It Be," uh, the one that's you know, everybody had a hard year. That's right. That, that's right. A, that's a kind of a diary song as well. Yes. Now I, I've got a feeling. I don't know why I'm forgetting the name of every song, but every, you know why? Because you've done all these episodes and you've only got so much room in your head. <laughs> that's right. Having trouble fitting it all. Yeah. In. When we're done with this whole show, you got to forget all this stuff. Otherwise, gonna, you're not gonna be able to drive. I'm gonna home. go into a sensory deprivation tank and just do this kind of weird deep cleanse. That or you just sing a song about. It and let us know your diary song about like how this is all going on. <laughs> so there just actually is okay. very, for those people that I don't know. Was anyone like anti Yoko? Like was the fan? Oh yeah. Oh, no no no. Was the fan base is what I'm saying yeah. anti Yoko? Yeah. Because this one really he was ta- she was taking John away. Understood. From the well then this song to me like brings them in a little bit and explains sort of things. It goes yeah. so you know what it's not. Yeah. Uh, literally, it's not easy. Let me tell you what things have been like for us. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, oh, okay, yeah. well, thanks. Now we feel part of this, and, yeah. uh, he and felt, there you are. He felt really, well, I think we talked about it before. I mean, he felt not only persecuted by the right, but also by the left, you know, after doing the revolution and declaring himself out of violent revolution. Mm-hmm. He really got a lot of flack from, from the lefties. And meanwhile, you know, the kind of conservatives are also mad at him because of his appearance, his attire, yep. his drugs, all that kind of stuff. He was, looks like the thing they fear. That's right. That's right. You know, and so, uh, yeah, he's dealing with that. And yeah, it's a kind of a fun song. I mean, even yeah. just the details of stuff like they couldn't get a marriage certificate here, so they had to fly to Gibraltar. And Peter Brown, who was, uh, you know, worked for Apple, was one of their, you know, executives there. You know, he's able to get the, or was it him or Elster Taylor? I can't remember now. But one of them gets the marriage certificate and brings it to Gibraltar so they can get married. And, you know, and then they're back in, in, in Holland on their honeymoon, doing their bed in. The problem with being in, Hol- in Holland during the bed in is that's when Dick James sold the music shares. To, to Lou Grade, because he did it when everyone was away. Paul McCartney was away, uh, Lennon was away, Alan Klein That's was away. That's when you do the sort of things yeah. exactly. So when you talk about like uh, the right being against, like if you if you had anyone draw the stereotypical hippie, he would look like John Lennon at the time. Yeah, exactly. He would have those glasses, the hair, well, the beard. That's your shorthand. Because everyone was imitating John Lennon. Under- understood. <laughs> Understood. They're kind of setting the style. Yeah. As it were. But if Mad Magazine was doing a thing on hippies, man, they would have their own glasses. They'd mm-hmm. have the whole sure. thing. Sure. Yeah. Well, it's shorthand. Yeah, exactly. Um, and that one interesting thing about the session was it was the return of Jeff Emmerich, who'd quit during the White Album. He actually came back to engineer this session for them, which was nice of him. And uh, and it actually ended an hour ahead of their book time. Like They just wow. got it done really efficiently, really fast. It was something that should have been done. It was done, and I'm, I'm glad they did it. Like it's, I think it, it feels like an important song mm-hmm. to sort of mark a period in history, you know, and uh, you can only kind of do that with a diary song. What I thought was kind of interesting was the ballad was recorded on April 14th, 1969. On April, 6th, in April 1960, the 23rd and 24th, so nine years before that, almost to the day, John and Paul had performed together as the Nurk twins in a in a uh, pub in uh, in like a public house in Caversham, Bucking, Berkshire, whatever it's called, Berkshire, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Berkshire. Hey, just performed as it, you know. So it's kind of funny that almost you know nine years to the day after that they're performing, they're doing the uh, solo act again. Yeah. Hopefully they refer to themselves as the Nurk twins during their <laughs> during the thing because there was a time where um where George told Paul he said you know slow down a bit Ringo. And Paul said, okay, George. So, yeah. <laughs> nice. it's just, yeah, they're having fun. And then I think the B-side is, more, you know, another great sign of the Beatles, which is a B-side worth flipping a re- the record for. Because I think Old Brown Shoe is a fantastic song, mm-hmm. uh, which George was on a real... It's a very full song. It feels very rich. Yeah, yeah. And George had gone into the... He, on his birthday, February 26th, he'd gone into the... To um, Apple... Or into... Uh, sorry, into Abbey Road and had re- done these very... Uh, 
very intricate demos of three songs of something, Old Brown Shoe, and All Things Must Pass, uh, intending them as so the Beatles could learn their parts for them. And also just for himself, just so he could have like nice copies of these songs that he had written. And so, yeah, so Old Brown Shoe was, became the, the, the B-side. And I, I, well, there's not much you can say about it other than it's super great. <laughs> um, what I like about it best, though, is that um, Paul plays jangle piano on it, which I haven't really talked about. What's jangle I keep, piano? I always mean to talk about the jangle You've piano. You've only got this episode to do it. I know. And so, so we'll talk about I wanted it next to squish time. it in. <laughs> I wanted to squish it in because the jangle piano is basically, it was a very popular sound mid-60s. Which is also known as a tack piano, which is where you have a hardened surface on the hammer of the of the piano. So when it hits the string, it it hits it with a more metallic sound. Oh, okay. And so it gives it more of that honky tonk piano sound that you'd think of like someone playing in a saloon. That would have been a tack piano sound. And so yeah, Abbey Road had their own tack piano or their own jangle pianos. It was called there, just the same as studios in the United States had their own tack pianos. So you know that the Beach Boys who are, who are the Birds or whoever just happened to be in the studio. Almost everybody, if you listen to songs from that time, they almost always have a tack oh, piano being played on them. I just want to talk about it because no, it's and been you, on every album. And now you have. And now I have, yeah. Have no regrets. No, Say everything you want to on this uh, one. Okay, yeah. so that's it for the single then? That's it for the single. All right, that was our final single, everybody. Last Moving single. on now to the final album. Abbey Road. Uh, track one, Come Together. Came out September 26, 1969. Sounds like, it sounds like a rattlesnake. The start to me, mm. the it just sounds like a rattlesnake's about to strike, and there's a it gives it sort of almost an element of danger yeah. that this album. Because John uh, is saying "shoot me" in that part there. Is he really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, the me is covered up by the bass part in it, but yeah, he's saying he's saying in an undertone. All right. Shoot me, yeah. Which someone listened to, unfortunately. Um, yeah, the interesting this song. I mean, it opens the album, and it's a fantastic opening. Yeah. I actually, I'm not super fond of this song. Because as a child, I found it really creepy. It is a creepy song. It was a very creepy like I say, song. It's got the rattlesnake start, and then yeah. it's a and all the and then a lot of, of weird. Yeah. yeah, it's almost Old flat top, and he's got juju eyeballs and all. Well, this, this kind is of stuff you know yeah. whatever yellow mustard dripping out of dead dogs. Yeah, like yeah. there's times that uh, Beatles likes to play around with words that are dark and creepy and but messed a, up. But as a child, Abbey Road was fairly recent. You know, by the time I became kind of conscious of music around me, you know, Abbey Road was only a couple years old, old at that point, or even, you know. And so that song was around a lot. And so I listened to it a lot as a, as a, as a young child. And so, whereas Live in the Walsh, I didn't hear it until I was a teenager. Yeah. But that song was around a lot. And yeah. So I Toe heard... Jam, Football, Monkey Finger, He Shoot yeah. Coca-Cola. What are you talking about? Yeah. This is all... Yeah. Yeah. Monkey Finger sounds horrific. If a guy gets diagnosed with Monkey Finger <laughs> or Toe Jam Football, yeah. Yeah. So, so this was John's first contribution to the Abbey Road Sessions in two months. Like, he hadn't even played in anything, really, uh, since You Never Give Me Your Money was mm-hmm. a song he contributed some guitar to. So it was a long time between that and this song, you know, and he didn't bring much in the way of new songs to the to it, besides I Want You, She's So Heavy, which really, let's be honest, dates back to the Get Back sessions. Right. And then Mean Mr. Mustard, Polythene Pam, which, which were all older songs as well. Right. You know, so he didn't really come with a lot of new stuff, so... This song he brought, he brought, and really brought it. I mean, this because the song is so fantastic. Now, historically, um, when when had they had John and Yoko done the 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 bag thing? This was happening simultaneously to Abbey Road. Now, my question with that is: in the song, we got he bag production, he got walrus gumboot. So we got a bag thing, and yeah. then the walrus right afterwards. Could be, yeah. Could be any connection to anything with that? Could be or just words that he likes. Could be, because um, actually, the song itself was. He was asked to write a song called Come Together by Timothy Leary, 
who is planning mm. on running for the governorship of California against Ronald Reagan. Well, these all sound like uh, acid-related yes. ramblings. And so... It's all the things you're seeing <laughs> while you're on acid, and you're just, like, saying them out loud. So his, elections, his election campaign slogan was, Come Together. So, now, John was not that great a fan of Timothy Leary any longer. Like, he had, was kind of um, disillusioned with the whole acid thing okay. of, of that ever amounting to anything at all. And so... Because uh, I think by that point, anything to do with like the idea of like acid bringing like peace on Earth and stuff like that must have looked pretty tired to everybody by 1969. Mm. You know, like by that point, everyone's kind of realized. Let, let's look at the wreckage of the summer of love, and let's be honest. This, you know, wasn't like the most fantastic idea ever. So, but I think the combination of like the sexual and political in the song and in that title, this in the title, come together was appealing to John. And so whether he cared about Timothy Leary or not, I think this that was a kind of a spur to be interested to write the song. So do you think this is a cynical song or do you think uh, not? Like, you know, if, if it was about Timothy Leary and clearly when he was saying come together, it was a positive thing, right? Sure. But almost everything that's mentioned in this song, like hold you in his armchair, you can feel his disease, clearly these are all negative things. Yeah. Yeah. And then it's come together. Yeah. We're all coming together, but we're all coming together with these horrific things. Mm -hmm. So is it... Is it a flip on what it was originally going to on that? You know, the sort of betrayal of the summer of love and what uh, what you know what it was supposed to be. We're all going to come together, but yeah. we're all going to come together, and this is what it really is. I wonder how conscious John Lennon was in the lyrics he was writing at this time. I mean, because we can relate this song to Dig a Pony as well, which is a series of random images, but not necessarily neg like all the like the ones mm -hmm. in here. There are harsh yeah. images in this one. Yeah, that's why it's that's creepy when you're a kid. It is, yeah, exactly. But then the but then the you know come together sounds. If you just hear the if you just hear the chorus, it yeah. sounds. Well, this is really nice. We're all coming together as a wait a minute, and then you you listen carefully. Hmm. We well, say that, but I mean, even the music itself is very kind of oh, absolutely. Has an undertone once of again. Threat, you know, yeah, it's just like ugh, and it's, it was very swampy. In fact, John Lennon asked Paul to make the electric piano he plays in it very swampy sounding and murky because mm -hmm. he wanted to have that kind of CCR, like Credence Clearwater, kind of feel to it, the Bayou kind of sound, yeah, or games people play, kind of Joe South sort of sound to it, and well. So, you know, we've talked about it before, but Lennon was still a heroin addict at this time. So his level of ambition was pretty low. And so, you know, when he decided, well, I need to, you know, I'm going to write this song, to spur himself, he kind of played around with his song by Chuck Berry called You Can't Catch Me, which is a car song. And in that song, uh, there's a line, and unfortunately he left it in, this, in Come Together. There's a line in the Chuck Berry song called Here Come Old Flat Top. Now, in the song, the flat top was a car. Mm-hmm. And he says, here come old flat top. He come moving up, you know, he come moving up beside, you know, moving up with him. As he says, he comes moving up with me, then waving goodbye. You know, and it has the same kind of sound. I got grooving up slowly. That's it. Mind. But in the Lennon song, yeah, he changed it. Oh, okay, slightly. all right. But he left in the here come old flat top yeah. from, the, from the Chuck Berry song. So what happened then was he was sued by the, so the music publishers. Oh. So oh. That seems ridiculous. Like, if yeah. you take one, that's not, uh, yes. that's one sentence. Mm -hmm. You mean you can't use one sentence? I guess if someone wants to make a fuss about it, they can. Really? So, so yeah. If so, I say take a sad song and make it better in one of my in a song that I write, yeah, I can get sued for that possibly. for a sentence. Yeah, possibly. I don't think you should be able to copyright a sentence. <laughs> Bad job, laws. <laughs> Let me say no to that. Well, as creative people, of course, we don't like it. As legal people, we love it. Um, now, the problem was the owner of Chuck Berry's music wasn't Chuck Berry, of course. It was a company called Big Seven Music Publishing mm -hmm. that was owned by this notorious 
uh, music mogul named Morris Levy. And this guy was, well, he's just well known for like, he was well known for his use of whiteout mm -hmm. uh, to erase artist names from the, the music, the sheet music and putting his own name in the place of it. So he got the co music copyrights. And he was very much connected to the mob. He Thanks was, a lot, Michael Nesmith's mom. <laughs> I think he was doing it before there was Michael Nesmith's mom. Oh, okay. Sorry, Michael Nesmith's mom, <laughs> who invented liquid paper. But he, <laughs> he was very much he was connected to the Genovese crime family. Great. Uh, you've seen? Have you seen The Sopranos? A little bit. There was a there was a kind of older gentleman in the show who played like a music company guy. Mm -hmm. He was based on Morris Levy. That was the character. That was you know he was just wrapped up you know had lots of muscle mob muscle behind him. He also ended up getting in trouble oh, and for dying, crying out dying loud. under, under, under <laughs> there's lots of, uh, there's a really book, good book called by Frederick Danner called Hitmen. And it details all the payola and all the mm. mob connections, like all the music, uh, like all the records that got stolen from record plants rather than going into record stores, they would get stolen and be sold through illegal distribution outlets and stuff like that. Oh, there's lots of crime and stuff like that. It's a really good book. Okay. If anyone's interested in that stuff. Just on a side note, when you're saying that, uh, all these companies own the Beatles' music, and they're never going to be able to touch it. If you were to say, I don't know, uh, download illegally some Beatles music, that would be the music to download, right? Because then the, they don't get any of it anyway. There's well, less of a they get they get mechanical royalties. Oh, they get mechanical. All right, then uh, a bit of an ethical problem. All right, fair <laughs> enough. Oh, just uh, just think the music. If itself. you were to say, uh, yeah. download some music. That's right. Um, maybe the early if, songs are the ones you want to do. If you were to play Beatles music on the radio, I don't think they get money for that. Okay. This is one of those things. Whenever, uh, whenever I hear I'm like sure never, works, never uh, illegally download anything, and of course you shouldn't. Uh, we're saying we're not saying yeah, you should. Why would you? But if you, but I'm just, and then you of course hear who owns these songs, and it's like mobsters and stuff. Yeah, yeah. It's just like, well, now I, my ethical dilemma isn't to yeah, as big in as many it used cases, to be. Yeah. Although there was a, there's been and there has been a a long or still is there's a long time a movement with with lawyers who are willing to donate pro bono, just the way same way lawyers have donated time pro bono to help people. Uh, clearing people on DNA evidence. Yeah, there's people who've gone back and and restored copyright to song to songwriters who gave away their com copyright. Oh wow, okay. Good through on ignorance, them. through poverty, or whatever, like like the through being a musician. Yeah, like the guy who wrote <laughs> Louis Louis, he was able to get his copyright back. You know, he sold it for 150 dollars in 1960, whatever. Yeah, and he was able to to get it back because you know he sold it, but he didn't know the value of it, and he didn't he didn't understand that, and you know the 150 was more valuable to him than the Absolutely. possibility of it being a great a big song. Yeah, you take the now for, yeah, you, again, yeah. as you were saying, to a to a lesser degree or a greater degree, depending on how you say it, the Beatles did that themselves later on. And yeah. like, I got the house and you give away the everything else. What By really the way, depend? any pro bono lawyers that are going to do that, we'll give you a free t-shirt. If you give the rights back to some musician, <laughs> you let us know you did that, we're going to send you a completely Beatles shirt. What it all depends on, of course, is what company owns these co these royalty yeah. copyrights and stuff like that, what kind of money they have to fight back as well. Okay. That was so, uh, music ethics in the middle of our uh, discussion so now, about this album. So now, rather than face a lawsuit, what Lennon did at the time, this was in the 70s, 73, is he said, is he, he was recording a, a rock and roll oldies album with Phil Spector this time, and so he said, what I'll do is I'll record three songs owned by Big Seven on my rock and roll album, and then, you know, so then they'll get the money from that, and said, good, okay, that's fair good enough. Good deal. That's fair enough. Real good deal. The problem was, Phil Spector stole the tapes for, for, for the album, and wouldn't give them back to John Lennon. So what Lennon did it then... It was the worst thing Phil Spector ever did. <laughs> what Phil Spector did then... Uh, is, this, is this worse than putting the strings behind the long and winding road? I was thinking of other things Phil Spector did, but keep going. <laughs> so then, um, so then uh, 
so Lenin recorded Walls and Bridges instead. Uh -huh. And so then uh, Levy said, well, well, you've reneged on your contract. You've, you know, you, uh, you agreed to do this. It wasn't like they didn't sign a contract. It was just a, it was just a, yeah, a verbal, a gentleman's, yeah, agreement. A gentleman's agreement. And so then, uh, so then they're kind of at odds again. And so what, and you know, they, but what's interesting is when uh, Lenin was talking to, to, to Morris Levy, Levy told him, you know, what I'd like to do is sell this rock and roll album through mail order. Like it still would be a capital record, you know, but through capital records, but I'd like to sell it mail order, like through mail order distribution. And I'll advertise on television and, you know, we'll do it that way. Just kind of like the same way KTEL did yeah. in Canada. And um, so Lenin was interested in that. He's like, oh, that sounds like an interesting idea, like a new kind of way to sell my records. And so he was kind of hip on that idea. Capital wasn't. Capital's like, no, we're not doing that. Like, we're not going go to get into bed with Morris Levy, for one thing. But even that idea of having two separate outlets selling, like what a record store is going to say then, our main market for your albums, if we're selling cheaper to someone else so they can undercut the record stores through mail order. Like, no, it's not going to work. So Lennon's like, okay, fair enough. Forget it. Levy said, oh, I'm not going to forget it. And because Lennon had given him this rehearsal tape, like a kind of rough acetate of the songs that he was working on, just to kind of give him an idea of what, what the album sounded like. So, so at the same time this was happening, uh, Capitol Records went to Phil Spector and basically for $90,000 and 3% royalties on the songs that he produced, they got the tapes back. And so Lennon, uh, it's kind of, it's kind of hard to describe because this was during the last weekend. Have you heard of the last weekend for John Lennon? No. Okay. Well, he left Yoko Ono for a while. He moved in with this lady named May Pang, who was his, his assistant secretary, uh, I guess Yoko Ono's as well. And he went out, moved out to LA. And he had what we call kind of the lost weekend or a lost year. And he hung around with, you know, just got obnoxiously drunk with his buddies like Harry Nilsson and, and Ringo Starr and Keith Moon and just made fools of themselves, you know, wearing um, tampons in their head at, you know, at the the Troubadour Club, heckling the Smothers Brothers while they're trying to do a show. Oh, yeah. Okay. Just being general, That's kind of a famous thing. Yeah. Kind of being general jerks. And in fact, there's a, there's a letter that John Lennon, I think he wrote to Phil Spector or maybe someone at Capital telling them it's not his fault that Keith Moon and Harry Nilsson peed on the mixing console at AM Studios while they were, were while they were recording rock and roll. So you can kind of understand the the way the way that album was going anyway. And so when he was when he got back to New York and kind of sobered up, got back went back to Yoko, got his life back on track. He, now was he off heroin at this point as well? With that sobering, I think that they were still. Or was he the kind of sobering where you're on heroin? Yeah, it's not the soberest sober. According to Albert Goldman, they were still still. Do, you're still using uh, heroin. Okay. Because he mentions there this this doctor, this guy named Dr. Wu, who sold heroin to various celebrities. Uh, and that finally answered the question of who Dr. Wu was in the Steely Dan song on Katie Lied. Just oh. anyone who's a Steely Dan fan, okay. if you ever wondered. They, you don't you, have to wait for a Steely Dan podcast. You don't have to wait, have to wait for a Steely Dan podcast. Although that would be a fun podcast to do, actually. Um, yeah, so... So yeah, that, that's who Dr. Wu was. So anyway, so he... I'm just saying, it sobered up in the sense that he was... Instead of just being completely out of it, being completely drunk, by the time it came to record an album, he was still kept it together in the studio, you know, and just did his recreational drugs when it was recreational time. So, uh, so he was, so he was working on that, and so, but, and he did some, he did some uh, practicing. They went and did some rehearsing in a barn owned by this Morris Levy guy. So they were kind of close, kind of close in a way. So, so Levy decided, well, I'm not gonna, I don't care what Capital says. I'm going to release the album anyway. And so he put out this... What could be the harm? What could be the harm? So he put out this album called Roots. Uh-huh. Uh, John Lennon plays the great rock and roll hits. Mm -hmm. And all it was was this very rough acetate. <laughs> but you know who? what are the customers for this who bought it through mail order? 
John Lennon. He was just kind of curious, so he bought it. He was very disappointed that it took a month to get it, though. <laughs> did he get a discount, or did he have to I pay know. full rate? No, he paid full rate. And it was very ugly. It was just like this yellow cover uh-huh. with a, a picture from John Lennon from about White Album era. Yeah. And you know how it looks when you, you cut out like the background from a picture and you have that kind of weird, smooth look to the hair and stuff like that? I gotcha, yeah. Yeah, that's what it looks like. Okay, <laughs> it's this yellow background and very simple, now, I'm gonna super t- black. Now, I'm going I'm to take a guess and say this is a rare album to this day. Yeah, about, there's about th- approximately 30, 3,500 sold via mail order. Okay. And... Uh, and because pretty much almost as soon as it came out, there was a cease and desist order slapped <laughs> yeah, on as it. As there would be, yeah. And, and the whole thing kind of fell apart. And then Levy sued Lennon, actually sued, sued him for breach of, oral, breach of an oral contract. And he won $6,795. Not great. Not great. But then Lennon, EMI, and Capital sued Levy, who had to pay $145,000 for uh, selling the album mail order when he <laughs> shouldn't have. So... Did Probably he return his album to him, at least, as a goodwill gesture? Then. Lennon returned yeah, it to him? Yeah, I'm no. going to give you the album back yeah, then. Probably, if I'm like suing you for making it, I, think I should probably it. return it to you. I think oh, well. probably kept it. All right, fair enough. But anyway, that's a little history behind Come Together. That was an excellent history. Long-reaching. No, no, I like it. All right, so we're going to track two. And that would be, uh, according to my calculations, uh, something. Yeah. Fantastic song. We've yeah, it really is a beautiful song. Yes. Like, and, and it, it's almost like a soothing balm that you get after that last song. Like, that last song, you got a little bit of road rash, and this one, someone took some aloe vera and yeah. was just putting it on you. Like, all right, now this is soothing and cool and just yeah. a beautiful song. Uh, song. George does a beautiful song. Like, George is a beautiful song. Like, if there's a beautiful song. You think it's going to be George? Uh, sometimes. So, yeah. Savoy Truffle, that's a beautiful song? Okay, listen, I'm not saying every one of those <laughs> is a beautiful but. <laughs> George can do a beautiful song. Of saying. course he can. And, uh, George can hit you deep. Here's the is thing. What I'm saying. Much to your amusement, last last episode, I I said that I don't remember Paul, being amused at all. Paul went through his purple patch. Okay, I am amused at that. And I think we can also say the same thing for George that he was going through a real purple patch at this time. Not only was did he write. Why don't two, you explain what a purple patch is? Just like a really like a because we're hot, talking about wounds and whatnot. Do I want you want me to call it a hot streak? Sure, let's go with that. Okay, George was having a hot streak at this time. I mean, he not only did he write two of the most beautiful songs on Abbey Road. But he pretty much wrote enough songs, he did write enough songs to fill a double album uh, uh, for All Things Must Pass, which he was working on at this time. You know, so he was really writing some great songs. And what's lucky for George, unlike John and Paul, who are in the middle of wrestling for ownership of their songs, George, at this time, owned 80% of his music. And by the time mm. 1970 came, he bought the 20%. Owned, owned by Nem, so he owned a hundred percent of his songwriting. Wow! So he got a hundred percent. I mean, he wrote one. I mean, something is the second most covered song by the Beatles after Yesterday. Is that right? Yeah. So he got all that himself. hundred percent. I would not have guessed. I would not. That's fantastic. So I mean, thank you for giving me good news. So <laughs> the news so far has been not great, and I know we're getting to the end of the Beatles. So I'm a little sad. I'm a yeah. little melancholy. You know, I know where a... this story is going, mm-hmm. and I'm not. I'm not great with it. Yeah. So thanks for uh, filling me in on that. That's great. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's why he could afford to buy a giant house and why he had money for handmade films when he when he produced Life of Brian for the, for Money Python. Yeah. I mean, that's why he had millions of dollars just sitting there that he could, like, yeah, hand over to them. Yeah, he then helped out, yeah, as you say, uh, the Pythons mm-hmm. and helped create some great films. Great films. Oh, yeah. If you look at the films made by handmade films, there's some fast, fantastic films. So, um, yeah, it's a wonderful song. Uh What's funny about it, well, I kind of mentioned it when we were talking about the White Album, because while he and uh, Chris Thomas were sitting at the harpsichord, while Chris Thomas was figuring out the harpsichord part for Piggies, uh, George played him something. And Chris Thomas was super impressed by it and said, well, 
basically said to him, why are we doing piggies? Why, why aren't yeah. we doing something? But George was, didn't have a great deal of self-confidence. You know, he grew up in the shadow of, of John and Paul. And so he was kind of like, oh, you, like, you really like it? Like, you really like this mm -hmm. song? And, you know, he's kind of like, well, I was going to give it away. I was going to give it to Jackie Lomax, uh, who, who, you know, the Apple artist who he was producing. And in the end, he actually did give it away. He did give it away. He gave it to Joe Cocker to, to do. And luckily, Joe Cocker's version came out a month after, after the Abbey Road mm. version, after George's came out. So he kind of missed the beat there. And so George and George had the single and scooped him and stuff like that. But like George had some great fans of the song, like Frank Sinatra called, called it, I think with a little bit of hyperbole, but he called it the greatest song, greatest love song written in the last 50 years. You know, um, I, I'm not going to go that far. I don't. Okay. Here's, I think what, it's good. here's what I like about this song. It's like, I'm not a huge fan of the, of the songs that go, I'm going to love you forever and ever and forever. Yeah, and you're yeah. the one and this is it. And, mm -hmm. and now everything's changed. I love, I love this. The, you're asking me, will my love grow? I don't know. I don't know. You stick around. May know it may show. I don't know. I don't know, but yeah. I don't want to leave her now. Yeah. I'm, I'm here now. Yeah. And you know, the, uh, I mean, that's kind of. You know, when you get it's, to like a lot of things about Buddhism, spirituality, what have you, it's like enjoy the now. The now is important. Don't think of the future. Don't think of the past. What is happening now? It's a weird. This. It's a weird songwriting trope that Beach Boys use it in God Only Knows, where they say, "I may not always love you, yeah, but as long as there are stars above you, you need never doubt it." And then also in um, the Jimmy Webb song, Wichita. Lyman? Well, that does sound though. It's forever though. He's like, I may not always love you, but, but I'm going to love you as long as there's stars in the sky. Yeah, that is still but no. Forever, but it's a, that little much. twist of you know yeah. the, the negative with the pos the positive. You know, gotcha. Same, which is a lineman where he says, um, I, "I love you more than want I need you. you. I need, I need you, you more than, than want you, and I'll want you for all time." But, but again, again yeah. it's all time. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the the common idea in all these songs is forever. Yeah. And this one has the uh, this one has I I don't want to say the word because I, I want to think of a cleaner word. This one, this one has the brains and the soul to say love might not be forever. Yeah. But but what you've got right now is precious and actually is that's something stronger to say to someone yeah. and truer than all the flashy you know Paul McCartney singing directly at you you're my love forevermore kind of business you of know. Of course, George meant earthly love versus you know spiritual love. But anyway, fair yeah, enough. That would have been his thing because this love is transient. Yep. God's love is is always that's was George's idea right yep which but the nerve to say transient love is still <laughs> yeah no it is still fine it is it's interesting and yeah so the actually the song like was started at the same uh, session as old brown shoe so when they recorded old brown shoe and got it all done and, and happy with and they they worked on they did about 13 takes of something and they liked it well enough but george wasn't all that happy so he they went back and they started like they just redid it basically redid it all and so they redid it with um uh, well, gee, I think I've gotten myself kind of mixed up here, but sorry. Sure, sure. Because yeah, I was gonna say it was yeah they redid it with uh, Billy Preston on on organ. So Billy Preston happened to be there, and so he he did the organ part. And that version of the song it was seven minutes and forty eight seconds long, because it had this really long kind of well what Mark Lewison calls because I've never heard it, so I have to. It might be on on YouTube, but I forgot to check to see if it was there. I'll have to look after the show's done. But um, he describes it as a long, repetitious, and somewhat rambling piano-led four-note instrumental fade-out. So it sounds like something that should have been removed from the song just okay. to, give it, to get it to the, you know, the perfect thing. But what I was going to say, what I inter interrupted myself was that what he, brought, what he used in something, and pretty much is ubiquitous on Abbey Road, is the less lead guitar sound, which also is quite prominent on Get Back. Because uh, George's friend Eric Clapton had given him this Leslie speaker 
that was specifically for like a guitar or organ to be plugged into. So you didn't have to have like the whole cabinet with the Leslie organ. You could just use a speaker. And so we had the speaker that, which was the 147 RV. So it had a reverb in it as well. And you just had to plug your guitar into a preamp and the preamp into the speaker. Mm. And then you could have like Leslie tone, tones on your guitar. Because when I was listening to the Get Back sessions, I was thinking to myself, it's kind of odd that uh, they couldn't do like any kind of like special, you know, overdubbing and stuff like that. But all of George's guitar sounds like it's being put through an effects, an effect, like through the through the uh, Leslie. But then, I, then I read that oh, he actually had this, this speaker that this special speaker that he could so it kind of was sort of sort of cheating, but not it quite makes cheating. Sense. It's okay. And yeah, so he used it extensively on. Uh, on Abbey Road, like a lot of songs have that tone in it. And what I'm thinking of most, like the guitar in uh, You Never Give Me Your Money near the end, there's this guitar playing. And also, what's a really a technique that he brought to Abbey Road is that arpe arpeggiated sound where he's kind of dun, 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 playing like that. Okay. I'm not playing a part that he played, but just that's an example of playing where you have a chord and then you, you play the chord individually right. rather than strumming it. And that, I think, in a way, that was an an adaption from when they're in Rishikesh and playing without electrical electricity. You know, you have one way you can make mm. a chord last longer is to arpe arpeggiate it. So rather than strum it, you you play it, you play it individually and you can stretch out the chord. And so he took took that playing and he adapted it into to the electric guitar and then brought it really brought it to, to Abbey Road. You can really hear it's probably his last like major stylistic development during the Beatles you know so you go from his like Carl Perkins rockabilly to and then into his uh 12 string right folk folk rock kind of sound into his psychedelic guitars backwards guitar kind of uh and then Indian kind of sound and then we come to his final kind of development the arpeggiated sound of of uh of Abbey Road yeah those are good facts huh folks Pretty good. <laughs> is it? Yeah, get that from another well, I podcast. Just think, I just think that George. You're is... gonna miss this one when it's gone, right? You're not gonna get that anywhere else. Because people make fun of George as a as a as a musician. I don't think they understand like how great he was as a musician. To heck with those guys. Because he integrated himself so much into the music. Yeah. It wasn't flashy. It was just so. Sometimes the best people are the ones, yeah, that don't stand out. Yeah. Yeah. Because he, they're he making and... everyone else look good. Both they're making the work look good. And Ringo understood their their role as backup. You know, as part of this whole. Not not. Not, you know, flashy players, you know, like Ringo played on a drum kit his whole career. His drum kit consisted of a snare drum, a bass drum, and a floor tom. Mm -hmm. That was it. That was his drum kit. You know, he wasn't Neil Peart with a thousand instruments all over the place, you know, with, with this, you know, or Terry Bozio with a drum kit he had to climb into like an astronaut getting into a <laughs> space capsule. He just had this very simple drum kit and yet produced some of the greatest sounds in rock and roll. I'm going to, I'm going to recommend something to our audience that you, uh, that I recommend to you, which was All Together Now, which is a, um, a documentary about uh, the Cirque show Love. Oh, okay. And it's got a lot of great, like great George Martin interviews okay. and Ringo Starr interviews. And uh, there's stuff about uh, George that would, uh, uh, George Harrison would just, oh, melt your heart. Right? You see you see scenes where like his son is, is watching a mm -hmm. thing and his son looks just like him. And it's, but why, well, where I was uh, going with this was uh, Ringo, you can tell, is very proud of his drumming. Mm -hmm. And there's 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 uh, times where George Martin is layering Ringo's drums over Ringo's drums, yeah. And they mention like uh, I think George Martin is going like, of course Ringo loves it. It's more of his drums on more of his drums. This is the favorite thing he's ever heard. He loves this because he loves his drums. Well, so why, yeah, why it's he? nice to know. But it's nice to know someone has pride in their mm -hmm. work. Yeah, you know, and uh, and he definitely does. Not only pride in his work, but I mean, Ringo brought real innovation to his to his his playing as well. I mean. When you think about 
how he played, you know, his his basically like lead drumming on 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 a day in the life where he's just playing the toms mm -hmm. and just almost almost being like a lead instrument in that song, but not in a flashy, obnoxious way, in a completely integrated way into yep. the song. Or his use of, of, you know, interesting production techniques, you know, something we haven't really talked about a lot is, is Ringo's playing. But just the production, you know, like his willingness to let uh, Jeff Emmerich close mic his drums, and also the fact that he would like put tea towels on the drums or towels on the, on the drum heads to, to, and that would muffle them a bit and gave right. it a different sound. And even he had... You know, his playing developed too. I mean, think about his playing on Let It, on the, on the Get Back, Let It Be sessions and that great kind of rolling sound that he would bring to the songs, like Let It, like Get Back, that song, like that had that great kind of rolling sound to, to the songs on that album, you know. The, the songs on Abbey Road don't sound that way. He brings a totally do, new, different sound to that. Like, you can go from yeah, he's album got, to album. He's got depth. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You go from album to album and listen to what Ringo's doing, just his playing, and you could pick out, you could say, oh, that's from that era. Or that's him playing in that time. Like if you were familiar with his sound, like because he he brought a different sound. You know, his Beatlemania splashy sound, his you know his kind of psychedelic sound, like the rain, like rain sound right. stuff like that, where he's playing these rain really is elaborate, a really, good example, yeah. really elaborate stuff. Uh, his drumming on uh, he uh, she said she said, his drumming on you know like get back you know, and finally his drumming on like something something like uh, we just talked about come together, mm -hmm. where it's just an amazing drum sound. I mean, it's amazing mm -hmm. that part in that song. So yeah, but anyway, let's go back to something. Okay, because I, I kind of got off sure, the sure, beaten track there. Um, actually, I think I've said basically all I have to say about it because, uh, other than the fact that the opening lines, let's talk about borrowing lines. The opening lines of something were borrowed from a James Taylor song, which was called "Something in the Way She Moves." That was the name of the song, and it's uh, and they didn't get sued for that. And the actual line from it was "Something in the Way She Moves." Or looks my way, or calls my name. So once again, ah, he just borrowed right. a little bit of it. It just inspired him enough to create his own kind of version of that song. But James Taylor, so James Taylor album was an Apple album. His first album was on Apple Records, which was produced by I was saying by Peter Asher, and I think Paul McCartney helped as well. And the instrumentation or the orchestrations for that album were by Richard Hewson, the villain of the uh, Long and Winding Road, who you know did the orchestrations and choir ah, yes, for okay. for Let Let It Be. And also worked with uh, Paul McCartney on his Th Thrillington album. Did the orchestrations for for Ram for that album because Thrillington is like a instrumental remake of Ram, the, the Paul McCartney record Ram. Every song in there is remade in, a, in various different instrumental styles. So some sound like a Beach Boy song, some sound like an Easy Listening song, some are done like a big band song. It's quite a fun album actually. Cool. Uh, yeah, if you get the uh, if you buy the Ram uh, Deluxe Edition, it comes with the with the, the Thrillington CD as well. So it's well worth getting. Cool. But um, yeah, well, Taylor has never complained about it. Like, so I guess he could have if he wanted to, but he says, well, "What's the point?" Well, he said, "Yeah, well, it's you know, it happens all the time. Music is about borrowing." And to be honest, I used "I feel fine" at the end of the song. I borrowed from "I feel oh, fine" good, good. at the end of my song, so it'd be you know, kind of also the world got this great song. Exactly. You know, as a yeah. musician, don't two you great, want good songs in the songs, world? Yeah, the, there James, you go. James Taylor's song is really good too. Yeah. So um, all the orchestral overdubs for Abbey Road were all done in, in one session. So they just kind of left everything till the very end and near the very end of all the recording, they just came in, they did all the songs that required any orchestral stuff in one at one time. And so almost all of them kind of have very similar uh, music, okay. instrumental It'll makeup. Be uniform, yeah. And so, yeah, because like so uh, for something, it's uh, four, viol four violas, four cellos and a string bass doing this beautiful counter melody to what George is doing. And then like during the middle eight, you can hear the pizzicato. There's 12 violins doing that plucking, the string plucking. 
very well done. The usual beautiful George Martin uh, thing. It's, you know, like giving him uh, so much control over the album, they really got paid back, not only in terms of quality of of the, the you know, the accompaniment, accompaniment and stuff like that, but also in just the overall professional sheen he brought to the album. It's probably like the I'm best really, produced. I'm really glad he got that as well. Yeah. Like he got to end yeah, on that as that's well. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Now we're moving on to a song that made the Beatles mad. <laughs> made the Beatles mad? Well, everyone but Paul. Like, uh, it was, uh, and it's, uh, yeah. we're on uh, Maxwell's Silver Hammer. What a weird song this is. It's very strange. Now, here's my, my exposure to this song was uh, the first time I ever heard this song, I saw Steve Martin singing it. Oh. And it was from the uh, Sgt. Pepper's... Lonely Hearts uh, Club Band. Yeah, right, and I, I always got that a little bit confused because it's very similar to his character in the as the dentist in Little Shop of okay. Horrors. You know? By the way, if you want to make someone creepy, uh, get a, a stand-up comic. Stand-up <laughs> comics are creepy. Do that, yeah. uh, very close to being creepy. Uh, this this is a weird song. It's very it's strange. It's uh, you know, I mean, it's not like the first time there's been a serial or a murderer song. Mm. Uh, uh, Bobby Darren, Mac the Knife, yep. popular song sure. about some stabbings and yep. whatnot. Yep. But uh, yeah, this is now. I'm not saying I don't like this song. I actually find it's a catchy little number, and I'm all right with it. Yeah. But uh, what a weird song it is. Like it starts off. You're starting off with Joan. She's just uh, she's, she's quizzical. She's quizzical. Uh, yeah. Studies metaphysical science. No, and she's all. studying pataphysical. Pataphysical. Science. I, yeah. I am so sorry. Yes. Pataphysical science. I'm not sure what pataphysical science is. Pataphysical science. Well, let me tell you. All right, please. Because there is. It's actually. Uh, yeah, I know you can study it in the home. You can study it in the home. <laughs> Maybe mail order. There was situation a, when you it, get your John Lennon album. You can also get uh, get a correspondence course for pataphysical science. It's a well. It's it's an unknowing reference because Paul got his reference from somewhere else, but it actually ref- refers to a French writer. A uh, French symbolist, absurdist writer named Alfred Jerry. Okay. Or Jari, I guess. Jari. And uh, he um, he created... Have you ever heard of Ubuwa? Like Per Ubu? I don't think I have. Okay, well, he kind of created this famous... It's a famous play called uh, Ubuwa, which is... And uh, he and he also invented the uh, science or slash philosophy, which he called pataphysics. And pataphysics was the science of, of imaginary solutions. Okay. And so every event in the universe is accepted as an extraordinary event. So every event. So, you know, anything that happens, it is a very strange, it's, it's yeah, a, yeah. basically an absurd thing. He, had, he wrote a novel, and what the novel is about is about this man who, uh, this professor of pataphysical science, traveling through Paris, explaining how it works. And so it's kind of an interesting thing. He was very influential on on the Dadaists and and surrealism and futurism and stuff like that. And but where Paul McCartney probably got it was there was um, on the Soft Machine on their second album. There's a great song at the beginning beginning of it called "A Pataphysical Introduction." Mm-hmm. And so he probably took it from that because he was he was aware of their albums. He was in, you know knew them and and uh, and he he thought it had something to do with a drinking club. Which is probably because Robert Wyatt was a member of the Pataphysical Club in Paris, and he was a big drinker. Okay. So he probably conflated the two into a drinking club, but yeah. So that's where it comes from, actually. That's great. No. But and so and so Jones studying this. She's studying this pataphysical science. And this uh, in the guy's home. Uh, in, her, in her home. Yeah. Well, the other guy he's studying medicine. I don't, yeah. you know. And uh, Max, Maxwell Edison. Maxwell Edison majoring yeah. in medicine. Yeah. And uh, he uh, comes. One goes to the mm-hmm. movies and uh, comes over and uh, kills her. Yeah. Now you're listening to this album. Now, first of all, first song, a little creepy. Yeah. Now we're okay. Everything's fine. Everything's fine. And now, hey, you know what's happening do, now? Do, We're getting a fun do, song. Do, well, it almost do. starts. It almost starts in the same way as like an Eleanor Rigby. Yeah. You got someone like she's all alone with her test tube. She's alone. 
And uh, test, test tube. Yeah, that's right. Eleanor Rigby. No, no. Uh, oh, Joan. Joan's alone with her test tube. I thought you said it was like Eleanor Rigby who was but alone with her test no, tube. No, no. Eleanor Rigby is just she alone. Was, she was alone with her dentures. That's right. Yeah. Uh, and so it's like, oh, it's another Eleanor Rigby. Oh, no, wait. The guy called and she's going to go to a thing. And you learn maybe Eleanor Rigby was right to not date. Yeah. Because there's a lot of freaks out there. But if you're, if you're, once again, I always think of the young a woman who is sitting on the on the bed. Yeah. And she's listening to this song. And it's like a happy song. Yeah. And then people are getting their heads bashed in yeah. in a very fun, lighthearted Sure. German way. Yeah. I always equate this kind of thing to Germany. Well, it has a bit of that polka dom dom. Yeah. Kind of well, when you're like, gonna, when you're gonna have dum, something dum, horrible dum, and semi funny happen, dum, you dum, better dum, put a little dum, German behind it. Boom. Boom. Yeah. Boom, it's a. This is a. Boom. This is a strange song. Yeah. This is great. a really strange song. It is. And when you're a kid, it's great. You love it. You love Cause it because you like things kind of getting the people getting their heads bashed in. And then as you're an adult, it's not as much fun. What I, my favorite, one of my favorite parts of this song is that, well, while the Beatles were on vacation in June. This is not a great thing, but John Lennon had a terrible car crash mm-hmm. in Scotland involving Yoko, Yoko's daughter, Kyoko, and Julian, John's son. And he had to spend some time in the hospital. And so he missed, he missed quite a bit of, of the sessions. And so he came back just in time. He was lucky. He came back just in time to start working on Maxwell Silverhammer. That's what he came back to. He comes back. Yeah. And immediately. And this was then over Paul, and over and over. And he just was so tired of Paul's. Like, you know, okay, he was okay Call with. Call some granny, granny music? Granny or? music, yeah. Now, what does that mean? Well, this music the grannies would like. You know, he just thought that this was music that for old people, like, you mm. know, it's not hip, hard music. It's not, I want you, she's so heavy. This is not authentic. This is not authentic music. This is in- inauthentic music catering to, uh, to catering to the squares. Right. You know? And uh, I guess it's true in a way, but. But in another way, it's kind of a dark song. But according to Lennon, Paul McCartney insisted that this song would be a giant hit. Produced properly, this song was was a giant hit in the making. Well, I don't know if that's true. I don't know if it's a Mac giant the hit. Knife was. So, you know, people do like a killer killer song. <laughs> now, now we were mentioning on a previous episode, did they have people that they knew that actually died in this way? Like there was a hammer-related... No. Yeah, there was a hammer-related murder. Who? Oh, we talked about it on a previous show. I can't, I can't tell you right now. I don't think so. Yeah. There really? was, yeah. There was, there was someone who was like uh, killed, uh, like I believe, by their lover with like a with like a hammer. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but that's not someone they knew. That was uh, Joe Orton, the playwright Joe Orton, who was working on on uh, loot, like worked on the the uh, screenplay. For right. One of I'm their... sorry. We we don't really do research within the show, so yeah. I can't look it up right now. Yeah, yeah. But there was some sort of real no, no. life connection. Yeah, yeah. That yeah. was his Kenneth Halliwell, his lover. Okay. Killed Joe Orton with a hammer. All right. But they weren't really friends of, of the Beatles. I mean, All he right. was working on a screenplay for the Beatles, but that was the connection. But that may have that may have sparked it in a way in in Paul McCartney's mind. It just I mean, seems. Yeah. I mean, yeah. are there a lot no. of hammer related murders? Well, Leon Trotsky. Was killed by a hammer. Okay, he might have been thinking of Leon Trotsky. Yeah, okay. Well, it's too bad. Just Tro- Trotsky is a hard uh, is a hard word to rhyme. <laughs> and by the way, just just from a logistical standpoint, if you've got a hammer murderer, yeah, okay, who has killed multiple times, yeah. he is on trial. Yeah. Don't let him bring his hammer to court. <laughs> Because you're, you know, that last one, Judge, that's on you, that's frankly. Right. Yeah. The whole British legal system yeah. is to blame unless, for um, Unless he grabbed the judge's gavel and used that as a hammer. But I think he used his own hammer. So also in this song is something relatively new to music at this time that hadn't been heard that often before, which was the Moog synthesizer. It's hard to say. The most hard, let's the just hardest instrument to hardest say. Hardest instrument for me to pronounce since I have a hard time with Sybil. But uh, let's just call it the Moog. Right. This for me. Right, That's everybody? why we can never discuss the movie Sybil. Either. Never. No, Sybil? <laughs> yeah, terrible. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, because George was in visiting L- in L.A. 
And he happened to hear one uh, while he was producing uh, Jackie Lomax there. Mm-hmm. And so he happened to hear one. So he bought a, a Moog and he brought it back to England. And so uh, it came, it was, uh, what he bought was one called the 3P. The P stood for portable, which I mean, I guess meant it could be taken out of America. Yeah, how portable was portable. Yeah, not all that portable. If you see it, it's quite large. But it came with a, like a ribbon controller and a separate keyboard unit. So the ribbon co- controller was kind of like a, a fret, fretted thing that you could slide your finger up and down and get okay. you know woo, make it like a theremin sound almost and then the keyboard you could play like a keyboard obviously and then it came with two cases uh, which can contain the oscillators and filters and amplifiers and generate generators and all those things that you need and then it was it was almost like a switchboard where you plug in various leads to different plugs and then you would create different electrical circuit you know electrical circuits that would yeah. create different sounds so when they were played on the keyboard it would mo- it would create these different mod modulations and stuff and uh so like cause before that, like if you wanted to do like so like someone like Frank Zappa, who did a lot of uh, music concrete and stuff in, on his records, like on we're only in it for the money. He did a lot of like sort of tapes, like electronic tape sound st- stuff in there. But the way you did that was you had to create you had to create modulations on the tape, like, you know, manually create frequencies on the tape and then cut up the tape. So you, you know, like so for like. I think I was reading somewhere like for one second of sound, it could involve eight different edits Ew. to try and get. That's like doing animation. Yeah. So, so the Moog was a huge advance on that, right? Like it, to, to produce music electronically or to create tones and stuff like that. It was such a huge advantage. Uh, and so, yeah. So George first used his Moog to create uh, a record called Electronic Sounds, uh, which came out in 69 uh, and was released on the Zappel label, the very short-lived experimental label called Zappel, before Alan Klein put the kibosh <laughs> on Zappel. He zapped Zappel. And then, so, now the Beatles weren't the first. The Monkees had used it before them. If you've ever heard the song Daily Nightly or Star Collector, there's lots of move okay. on there. Uh, Simon and Garfunkel used it on book on the Bookends album, like on the song America. It has this long kind of, kind of bass sound to it. Uh, the Supremes used it. And uh, the birds it did lots of electronic stuff, actually. There's so who brought it to the Beatles? George. Okay. Yeah, he happened to hear it when he was in L.A. And uh, he, he bought it and brought it back with him. And so it was set up in... Uh, Sorry, George uh, uh, Martin or Harrison? George Harrison, yeah. 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 And so um, so he set it up. It was set up in, I think it was called, it was a room called like Room 43 or whatever. It was off. It was beside Studio 3. And so all the leads ran out of this room into all the other studios so they could they could record... They move the Moog into uh, into other songs and other studios as well, and so it was on a, quite a few songs on Abbey Road. But the, this is the first time we hear it. It's not the first song that used it, but it was the first song that we hear that uses it. And Paul played it. He played used the uh, used the ribbon controller, so he plays it with that. So it would slide up and down and giving a kind of a, a vi- you know kind of violin sound almost. Gotcha. You know? Yeah, yeah. And oh yeah, Mike Vickers. They had to hire someone to act as a consultant to do the programming for them because it was actually very difficult to get sounds out of it. So you, it was not unknown. Like Stevie Wonder, for all his early 70s albums, he had a couple guys named Mark, Malcolm Siegel and Robert Margu, Margule, Margulief, for, who were in Tonto's Expanding Headband. They were hired by, by Stevie Wonder just to program all the synthesizers for him so he could play them. You know, and, and that was an unusual. Mel, Michael Malvoyne, who was a well-known session musician, he did a lot of Moog programming. And so this guy named Mike Vickers, who played in Manfred Mann uh, and also did the condu- conducting for A Day in the Life when George Martin was too busy uh, trying to make it all work in the, in the studio so, or in the control room. So Mike Vickers did the actual c- conducting. And so he was kind of known to, the, to them. So he was brought in as a consultant and did the programming for them for the song nice. and other songs. Nice. 
There you go. Good Moog talk. Moog talk. All right. Moog music. Going on from that, uh, getting away from this granny music. Yeah. And let's, we're going to Oh Darling. Let's go back to some teen music. Yeah, this sounds like it's, this is as granny as it gets for me. <laughs> I mean, this is uh, this is oldie timey music here. We're going yeah. retro here. Uh, yeah, this is a song, but not, but at the time, yeah, completely contemporary because, because you had musical acts like Shanana reviving fifties uh, music. You had, well, it was contemporary retro. Retro yeah, was, was that's right, but I just mean it, contemporary it, nostalgia. It fit into the scene at the time where you yep. had because you know um, Little Richard had done an album, Fats Domino had done an album, yep. Frank Zappa and the Mothers had done Cruising with with Ruben and the Jets. This complete uh, mock. You know, where they invented a, a group called Reuben and the Jets and, you know, had pictures of this so-called band and had a fake history of the band and did all the songs. Oh, that sounds And it's very ca- mock, you know, but very, uh, very accurate. Now, when they say mock, was it uh, done with love or was it done with, oh, uh, look at this nonsense? It was done with complete love because oh, that's good. what they grew up with. Of course, okay. they loved that music. But at the same time, they were old enough to realize that the, the love elements of, of that music was a little, you know, the... Was a kind of dated, so it's done, that part is done kind of ironically. I guess, I guess, to me, when I listen to it, uh, you know, it's like it's retro within yeah. an album that, again, uh, you know, was around when I was born, basically. Yeah, yeah. So you know, it's a retro of a retro, and I don't connect with this song as much as I do with the other songs. Yeah, yeah. yeah. interesting. Because like, yeah, yeah, it's, 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 just a, it's there. It's uh, good. Well, partly because it's just a pastiche, so it's hard to. It's, it's really just formalism rather than emotional. You know what I mean? It's just a, yeah. it's just taking the form and just having fun with it. Yeah. What's what's uh, maybe they are adding something new to it. Maybe yeah. they're adding production values that were never possible back then. Uh, but but uh, not I really. I mean, it's just a clinking piano. Well, and... then I don't connect with this song that much myself. Uh, what if I, you like it though, everybody, that's that's, well, I don't, that's fine. I don't by mind you. it. I think I got a little tired of it because I I have in my time listened to a lot of bootlegs of, of Beatles stuff, mm-hmm. and every day. Paul McCartney would go into the studio for about a week and a bit and he would sing Oh Darling. And then he'd be like, nope, not this version. We'll try it again next day. And he'd come back the next day and sing it again. And I think because he hadn't sung like a real belting out rock and roll song, he'd done Halter Skelter, but he hadn't done like that kind of full-throated singing. And he even said to uh, Alan Parsons, who was second engineer during uh, Abbey Road, he said to him, you know, back, you know, f- you know, four or f- four years ago, I could have just belted this out with no problem. You know, back in the days when he was singing Kansas City, hey, 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 and stuff yeah. like that, that would have been no problem for him to belt this out. But so, you know, every day he would go in and he would just kind of get, and he wanted kind of a rough sound to his voice as well. He wanted his voice to have a bit of a, have a bit of a kind of a gravel to it, a bit of a, yeah. and so yeah, every day, every day. So when I would listen to bootlegs, every time, they have this song <laughs> five times in a row, variations, and it's not that different. Like, believe me, his, what he was listening, listening for were subtle nuances that were beyond my ears. <laughs> so I kind of got a little tired of the song myself, actually. I do still like it. I think it's, I think it's a fun song, but, but followed by an even funner song, if that were a word. It's the funnerest. It's a funnerous song in again. The album. It's a very. It's a. It's this is this has been an odd grouping of songs. Mm-hmm. You know, as in like it's. It it's, had to be. It's gone. Yeah, it's gone dark to sweet to uh, funny murder song. Mm-hmm. You know, well, to be- old time retro to now just like oh, and bring the kids in. We're gonna sing a lovely song. But the thing was, is because the second side was so swallowed up with the medley, right? That you really almost every song that they did that wasn't, you know, earmarked for the medley. Had to go in the first side. Yep. Or the, at this time, it was the second side, because originally the medley was supposed to be on the first side, and the album ended with uh, "I Want You, She's So Heavy." It was a last-minute change that uh, switched the two. This is uh, actually one of my favorite songs to karaoke. Is that right? Yeah. I've never. By the way, if you're, if, if you're thinking, oh, it's pretty easy. Yeah. Okay. It's got a nice mm, right down the middle. <laughs> 
nice, Let's, nice uh, Ringo, softball Ringo pitch. It. Yeah, Ringo there you go. It. If you're ever uh, like a karaoke and someone's forcing you to go up, you pick a Ringo song. Yeah, you're gonna be okay. Sure. You can almost speak sing it. Yeah, you're gonna be all right. Yeah, but I, uh, I do like this song. I mean, again, I heard the song first when I was a kid. As a kid, it's a very appealing song. You know, it's one of those like as I got older, I was like, I was wondering like, is there a drug reference here that I'm not getting, or is this like some? No, is there it's some really, darker yeah. side that I'm not picking up on? Well, when, and uh, nope, it's, uh, it's apparently clean. It is what it is. Yeah, when Ringo quit briefly during the White Album, when he left in a high, high, what's it called? High something or other. Anyway, he uh, he left in that high dudgeon. That's what okay. I'm looking for. High dudgeon, and he he took his family to Sard- Sardinia for a vacation. And when he was there, this fisherman was telling him how octopuses would collect. Bits and pieces of shiny objects and kind of make their little make a little garden for themselves. Octopus are so smart. They are clever. Ridiculously smart. Yeah, they're very clever. Like anytime they do a test with an octopus and go, and then the octopus will like just will write its own test and yeah. go like, here's a test instead. <laughs> do this. Right. Octopus. We ever all drop dead. The octopus are taking over like that. Sure. They'll be living in your house. Sure. They'll be driving your car. So uh, yeah. So he heard. You know, when he heard that, it just fascinated him. So he started working on this song. And uh, if you, when you get a chance to watch Let It Be, which you will, of course, because we're going to talk mm-hmm. about it, you'll see George helping Ringo write Octopus's Garden in a scene that's quite endearing. So, oh, nice, nice. I'm yeah. looking forward to that. Yeah. Now, I, think, it is, it is, I have got a real soft spart, uh, spart. I got a soft spot. What am I, Dave? With all these uh, mispronunciations <laughs> and malpropisms. Uh, I got a soft spot in my heart okay. and my spoonerisms. Uh, did I mispronounce spoonerism uh, for, for this song? I like this song a lot. Unabashedly so. It's a yeah, it's song. a lot of fun. I'm, uh, it's kinda, I'm in. It kind of brings you back in a, in a fun way. Maxwell Silverhammer doesn't, but this brings you back to Yellow Submarine in a kind of a fun it way. It really does. It yeah. connects very well. Well, maybe they're both sea songs as well. That, that element, but also just the, it's an innocent, fun song that's, that uh, kids can kids can dance to and, and grandmothers can tap their toes to mm-hmm. tap their arthritic toes. This to. actually would have been a good B side to Yellow Submarine, but it could not be <laughs> because of time travel. Yeah, being impossible. Um, but if you're making a mixtape out there, make it your own B side. That's it's right. up to you. What a, the one thing I like in the song is the the high pitched vocals from John and Paul. Whether where it has it almost like undersea song because it kind of it's kind of <laughs> ripples, you know. I think yeah. it's really clever. Yeah, it's done really well. Okay, after that, oh, I want a great you. Song. She's so heavy. Great, great song. It really is a great song. Yeah. I love this song. Yeah. Gets you. It's Gets you in the chest, this one. This one you feel. Might be my second favorite song on the album. I don't like waterbeds, but I would like to listen to this song while lying on a waterbed. Um, so, yeah, because we were talking about how, like, this was like the first song recorded for, for the album. Okay. And once again, that weird thing with the Beatles where the kook, the craziest song is the first song they work on. <laughs> you know, like like uh T- tomorrow never knows on revolver or revolution nine mm-hmm. on uh on the white album and here once again you know uh, you know obviously, the... obviously they weren't thinking about this as abby wrote at the yeah. time because they were planning on they're still thinking of it as a get back song so it features billy preston and you know because it was still part of that session time initially you know it it actually was the longest it's actually the took the longest to make of any Beatles song. It took oh. six months of, not, no, it was off and on, obviously, but, you know, it wasn't like every day they were working on it. Oh my God, it's like a mine, working in a mine. But no, they were just, you know, just so much, uh, so many different things went into it over time. That right. It just took the longest to do. But yeah, it's a fantastic song. Yeah, it really is. I only have one complaint about this song. Okay, what is that? And that is Paul's bass playing, which normally I am the world's biggest backer of Paul Paul's bass playing. Why don't you like it on this? Well, because this song, this song is outside of the Beatles idiom like for one of the like John is almost writing new music for the for the Beatles that they hadn't really played before mm-hmm. you know like this is like 
written for the rock idiom. There should be no pop in it. And I have the same problem with Helter Skelter, is that the Beatles aren't really a rock band. They think in terms of pop. So when, when they're doing a song, rather than slugging us in the mouth with the music, they're trying to tickle us with it. You know, So you get Paul's bass, and you know, his bass should have, just be as dumb as possible, as dumb as a board. You know, and I and I do like some of it, but often he'll he'll go down and he'll he'll go he'll do this kind of like parts during the bass part when he doesn't need that. You don't want high parts and bubbling away at that part of the song. You're doing the you opposite thick, of what you you like George and Ringo doing, which is like yeah, serving the song. You want a thick soup bass, yeah, completely just grinding away at the bottom of this song, like just furthering the sexual you know psychosis of this song. Just and but he's not. He's he's playing this high register bass at times, and I like some of it. Some of it's okay, but some of it is just that part of it where he's just doing these kind of blue blue parts and stuff. I just don't like it. I feel like. He's not serving the song. He's he's kind of showing off in those moments, and I I don't like it. Okay. I don't like it. Paul. No, it's a strong it's a strong opinion, and uh, <laughs> you've waited till your last episode to do it. Uh, Dave does not like Paul McCartney. Okay, that's good to know. I did say I was a big no. nutcracker fan. <laughs> um, yeah. So so what's curious is that like so I said it it was begun February twenty second at Trident Studios. Right. Oh, and somebody asked me, and I should tell them I should talk about it a little bit because someone asked us, and I said I would talk about it. Which is why weren't and you're the, a man of your why weren't the Beatles at Apple Studios or at, at Apple Studios when they were recording this? Why is it called a- Abbey Road? Why were they at Apple? Well, the reason is is because Apple Studios was being torn apart because it was an absolute mess from Magic Alex and his his uh, you know his his uh, force field buffers and all the rest of it. So everything in there had to oh, get... Oh, right. The guy had force fields. Yeah. Listen to our last episode to hear more about that. Every Everything had to get taken out. And then the mixing consoles had to get returned to Abbey Road because that's where they borrowed them from. So they couldn't keep them forever. So they had to return them. And so Apple or yeah, Apple Studios were undergoing like a major reworking, like just a big rebuild. So, so they were out. They could not be used. And I guess at the same time, the Beatles didn't want to go back to Apple, go back to Abbey Road because that's kind of tail between your legs. So they went to Trident, and so that's where this song was recorded, is at Trident Studios. And they did a little bit of work at Trident and a little bit of work at Olympia, even when they were still... And they alternated with Abbey Road, but eventually, particularly when George Martin came on, it was almost all Abbey Road after that. Uh, and that's, But that's why they couldn't go back to Apple, okay. just because it was being torn apart. So this was started, like I said before, near the beginning of this marathon, uh, February 22nd at Trident Studios. And... So another song detailing Lennon's obsessive relationship with Yoko Ono. So, you know, once again, it's a self-referential. Oh, this is about Yoko. Oh, I want you. Yes. It's a second side of the coin of don't let me down. Don't let me down because I want you. You know, that's 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 all he thought about at this time. Okay. You know, they just lived in this little bubble together of, of heroin and and peace activism or whatever you want to call right. it they're doing. Yeah. And so... Um, and being clowns. And <laughs> being clowns for peace. Yeah, so they... And I guess I kind of talked about some of this stuff. So, yeah, they recorded 35 takes. They they broke the get back aesthetic by putting together three different versions, <laughs> the three different of the takes into one one edit. And then and then it gets it, it, But it's what's weird is that this song was so personal to John, but the Beatles, other Beatles really liked the song. Like even on the first day, Paul tried to tried to sing it himself. Like he just did an experimental vocal take himself just to sing it because he want he liked it so much. Mm-hmm. Which I think is interesting. Like so, you know, it spoke to the other Beatles as well. It wasn't just it wasn't just for. Oh yeah, it speaks to a lot of people for Absolutely. John. And so over, like so over the next few months, they just kept doing multiple guitar overdubs and adding other things to the song. So, uh, and then it ke- then it became really confusing. So this is almost as confusing as their musical publishing history. <laughs> at this song, so so after like um, they did like a 
session at uh, at Abbey Road. They recorded, they did like a huge long session and John and George recorded many, many, many overdubs of the guitar part on the song just to give it this more epic kind of feel like with this guitar, guitar, guitar. And then a rough stereo mix was made of that. So they had a rough stereo mix of the tr original Trident master, the edited master, mm -hmm. then put together with this stuff. And then a little while later, some conga drums were added to it and a Hammond organ part was added to that to that that new mix. Gotcha. Then, just to make it confusing, John, well, Ringo added some drums, and John added the synth uh, synthesizer sound and the that and the and a white noise generator to give it that that weird white noise gale like wind blowing sound at the end okay. of the song. He they added those to the original Trident master. So for some reason they skipped the one that they've been working on and they went back to the original tape and added stuff to that. And then a few days later they. The song became I Want You bracket, She's So Heavy bracket, because they added the She's So Heavy vocals to it. So John, George, and uh, Paul sang those vocals. Now, those vocals were cut into the, were cut into the, uh, the second version, the one that they had added all the guitar parts to. And that, and then, then John was kind of, was like, well, I've got two versions now. So then he cut the vocals into that one as well. So then he had two working versions that were almost the same. But one did not have one had a bunch of guitar parts on it, and the other one didn't have the white noise okay. on it. And or sorry, the one had the, the guitar parts on it, and, yeah. and but didn't have the white noise, and the other one didn't have all the massive guitar <laughs> overdubs, but had the white noise. So in the end, what happened was uh, when they did the final mix down, they did two stereo mixes for both versions, and then they mixed them together. And so you ha for you have the first, so it's confusing. You have the second <laughs> version that Once they again, added. Get out your graph paper. That they added all the guitar solos okay. to. Okay. That's for the first four minutes and 37 seconds of the song. Then the original Trident Master, with the white noise effects and stuff like that, right. was cut in for the remaining three minutes and seven seconds. And so, yeah, so it's quite long. So so the howling noise comes in around five five minutes and 17 seconds. It's around in there. So you start hearing that sound, which I love that part of the song. That's the other reason I love the song so much, is it just has pure noise in it. Because I love when bands just put, like, absolute just cacophony into songs. And... Uh, What's interesting about when they were doing the mix down as well, like, you know, they reached a point where, okay, we're going to fade out. We're going to fade this out. So, you know, yeah. John said, no, I just want you to slash it right here. He just randomly chose a moment, just cut it, cut the tape. So the tape was just cut. And so when you listen to it on CD, you know, when you listen to it, it just stops, right? It stops dead. What's interesting on my record player at home is when it's playing, my record needle lifts off the song before it finishes. So it feels like it could keep on going much longer, but only the needle can't go that far, and it lifts up and returns. Ah, okay. And so I never actually ever hear the end of that song because the needle lifts up before it ends. Yeah, it's fascinating. Weird. It's one thing when I worked. So you're saying you've got a haunted record player? Yes, that's right. Uh, okay. But, but the thing was, the white noise caused a ton of problem in 1987 when they went to do the remastering for CD because CD has so much more fidelity. Yeah. And so they had tr trouble because it was just picking up all this noise from this white noise where it worked okay on record before, but the increased dynamic range made it really difficult. Yeah, Darn kinda, you, future. Yeah. Ruining it for everybody. But I love that song. I love it dearly. Cool. Well, uh, can we go to the next song? Are you sure. comfortable with that? Sure. Um, Let's flip the record over now that our needle has lifted off before we heard the end of... You didn't even have to lift the needle. We didn't even... What, it, what's it doing? It just, it just lifted off Yeah, it lifted itself. off by itself. Rent return. I'm a little scared. I didn't hear the end of that song. Oh, well, let's flip it over. Oh, we'll listen to it later. It's and let's, a second time. Let's turn it over and let's listen to one of George's, another great song by George. This is uh, pretty close to a perfect song, like yeah. to me. This yeah. is like, 
just from the start, like it, the 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 intro to it, just musical intro, is just mm-hmm. so beautiful. So beautiful, yeah. And then you're just in, and it just it just the whole thing delivers. Well, it's another example of having George Martin there to to really perfect the sounds, you know, and yeah. and also the Beatles doing what they're good at, which is perfecting something. You know, the problem with Get Back for them was that they didn't get to perfect things. Like, wouldn't you love to hear Let It Be as recorded for Abbey Road? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Wouldn't you love to hear Long and Winding Road as recorded for Abbey Road? Like, to have the work that went into Abbey Road go into those songs so you could hear them. You know, I still love them. I think they're great songs. But it would just be to hear them per- played and performed at, you know, because quite frankly, during Abbey Road and during Let It Be, uh, John's bass is out of tune. You know, like it's massively out of tune. And so if you want to have his bass in there, you have to add a bunch of orchestral music to it to hide the fact that someone was playing an out of tune instrument, you know. And so if you were doing a proper album, those things would be fixed. You know, Paul would play bass anyway. Yeah. He would do a great bass part on Let It Be and a great bass part. But because you were doing it live, you had to rely on John, who wasn't the most, wasn't the greatest instrumentalist of all time and and wasn't that experienced on bass playing. So you get his version of great bass playing, you know. So, yeah, yeah, this song is just perfect. This is the way the instruments sound, that how chiming it is, and you really hear that arpeggiated sound that I was talking about, right? In in the in that ruling, you know, do 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 do, you know, it's just beautiful. I also again like the. I mean, I'm kind of the lyrics guy in this. Uh, is uh, you know, it's uh, things were bad, but hey, the sun's co- and you know what? The next time, mm-hmm. the next time winter happens, and winter's going to happen again. Yeah, sun's going to come again. Yeah. like this is the way it goes. It's very similar to the earlier song, which is like, let's just deal with the now. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, you know, don't worry about the past. And you know, if it's cold, this is going to this things are going to change, and, and the sun will come out. Well, it's I, almost Annie now that I'm saying it that way, but it's uh, much better. Where I think, well, I think where they were at that time, the future looked bleak. Yeah. You know, so the now was all they had. Yeah. You know, the future was unknowable. And they were right. You know, this all they had was that, but yeah. it locked in locked in time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it's a it's a magical song. And well, I think I already mentioned that George wrote it well well uh sagging off well well t- playing hooky from uh from uh. meetings and stuff like that. And yeah, he was quite a good like he and George or he and Eric Clapton were quite good friends at that time and were working a lot like um there's a song by by Cream called Badge. Uh, that George and, and Eric Clapton wrote together. And that also has that wonderful arpeggiated sound to it. So you listen to it and you go, ah, oh, Leslie toned arpeggiated chords. That is George Harrison playing that guitar part in that song. That is no doubt, George, you know. Just so people know, Badge is called Badge because the chords in the song are B-A-D-G-E. Oh. So, um. That is, again, good trivia. There you go. Well done. So, um. Not a lot more to say about a perfect song to <laughs> me. It's just like, no. Why not listen to it now? But Go listen to it now. Another really great arrangement by 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 George, and it's kind of under under mixed, I think, a little bit, the orchestral sounds to it. But I really okay. like the, the flutes in it, work really well. Yeah, because he had uh, once again four violas, because that's what he had that day. They were there, four violas, four cellos, twelve violins, probably one string bass, two clarinets, two alto flutes, two flutes, and two piccolos. They give it that really nice like high part where yeah. where it's where it's peaking, and as the middle eight's ending. Yeah, very very nice song. I'm all for it. Good job, song. Thumbs up. <laughs> yes, thumbs. Okay. Thumbs are, way up. Are we walking away from it right Let's now? Let's walk away. All right. Sunset. All right, there. We wave goodbye to that song. Beautiful song. Moving on now. Uh, because. Because why? Because we're walking away because... Because the next song is called Because. Oh, yes. I forgot. <laughs> so, yeah, the last song recorded for Abbey Road, actually. This, this is the last song? This is the last song they recorded, yeah. And uh, it's an interesting song because it's so... It's a John song. 
Oh, that's interesting. Now that you're saying yeah. it's the last song, just looking at the lyrics and whatnot. It's a John song, which is interesting because it's so it's you know so mellow. It's not the yeah. it's not John wasn't all rock, rock, rock. He liked to uh, he loved the quiet as well, and he loved he loved uh, vocals. He loved vocal songs as well. You think about like uh, this boy and that song. Thank you, police. <laughs> Uh, that's the the song "This Boy," and the song. And I can't remember the what you know. Red, red is the color. Oh, uh, yes, sorry. it is. Yes, okay, it is. That song. Good. It was a B side, early B side. But those are both John songs, and they're just vocal songs. There's right. just no no instrumentation to it. This has some instrumentation, but very spare. It's more about the voices and yeah. about the arrangement. Yeah, yeah. It's trippy. It's sweet. It's kind of inside, mm-hmm. outside. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Once again, it'd be good for the waterbed, lying down, listening to it with uh, this cram- you know, with the headphones on. Well, Abbey Road is a headphone album for sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's how I listen to it. Um, yeah. Based apparently based on hearing Yoko, she was playing piano. She's playing uh, a Beethoven part, the the Adagio Sostenuto part of Be- Beethoven's Piano Sonata Number no. Fourteen, Opus Twenty Seven, Number Two. Everybody, also known, <laughs> better known as the Moonlight Sonata. So she was playing it. And he heard it. Now, John Lennon tells a story that he had her play the chords in reverse. Oh. And he wrote the song based on that. Okay. But actually, the song in no way bears any resemblance to the Moonlight Sonata uh, in reverse. Good story killed by facts killed and by research. Facts. Yeah, sorry. That's the danger. Sorry. That's the danger so, to the research. Although it shares similar elements, it is not in reverse. And then uh, George Martin did the vocal arrangement. Mm-hmm. And it's the Beatles' voices recorded three different times. Oh, okay. So they're they're doing the so yeah. That's why you get that beautiful, extremely com- it was so complex. It took them five hours to do the voices three times. It's just a really long recording session. You know, you keep saying all these times where like uh, this took uh, this amount of time and they had to do it this and whatever. Mm-hmm. And I always just think worth it. Mm-hmm. That's fine. And now we have it forever. Oh, I know. So how long did that take? It did thirty-five takes. That's fine. Yeah, that's fine. You know, think of the repetitive stuff you do in your day that uh, you know was, won't know forever. Of course, you it know? was thirty-five takes of an eight-minute song. Again. <laughs> The same. Yeah, that's fine. Probably not all of them are complete, uh, complete, but uh, <laughs> yeah. So and then uh, George Martin, he played uh, a Baldwin combo spinet electric harpsichord, and uh, and so he played it uh, in unison with John, who was playing a Leslie tone guitar, and it was very hard for them to play in unison to get it perfect. So what they did was wear headphones, and Ringo played out the beat on a hi hat okay. for them, so we can't hear it, but they heard it in their headphones. And also Paul played bass, so they all listened to Ringo play out the beat so they could play in unison together. Nice. And it still took them 23 takes to get it right because it was just very It's difficult. worth it. It's <laughs> worth it. I'm going to say that every time you tell me how long something takes now. And this was the first song that George added the Mook to. And because he wasn't all that familiar with it, it took him 247 days to do it. Really? No. Okay. I just wanted to hear you say it was worth it. <laughs> it was. It's fine. <laughs> listening, you're listening to it now, right? Huh? There you go. Absolutely. Right, did it pretty, pretty wow, that's a, that would be a lot of but work. But he did it in two tracks, he, so he, it's quite an, it's okay. quite an elaborate uh, moog part. Uh, <laughs> so let's listen to my favorite song on Abbey Road. Okay. The next song, You Never Give Me Your Money. Okay. Why is this your favorite song? Oh, I love this song. I just love it musically. Wow, because there song. are so many great songs on this uh, mm-hmm. on this album. What this, takes this uh, to the next level? I love it. For a young David Denver. <laughs> I love it because it comments on the Beatles as they were at that moment and what they had been. And it's, it, uh, it's kind of elegiac. I can't. I can only read that word. Can't say it. But, you know, it's a sort of a celebration of what the Beatles were. Okay. And then it's also about what. So it's another. Uh, it's another kind of diary uh, song. Would you say? I would say it's a diary song because it's not about 
day-to-day -day things. It's just about the feeling of that time. Okay. You know, when you get that sense of, you know, and then there's that line, nowhere to go, which at first is like, oh, this is a sad thing, nowhere to go. But then he twists it and it becomes about freedom. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. And then you go into that go, next yeah. part of the song where one, you know, then it goes, you know, uh, slip on the something, get in the limousine. Yeah. Time to get oh, away from here. One sweet dream. Pick yeah. Up, pack up, pick up the bags. That's and get right. In the limousine. So now we have freedom, nowhere to go. Now, now it's one sweet dream. You know what I mean? And it's also, you know, he's sensing the end of the Beatles. Yeah. And so more than John, who's just reporting day to day, he's he's taking this bird's eye view of what's happening to them and just writing this song. You know, and I just and knowing that, I just love the song. I just love to sing along with it. I just love to sit in the car. I love his singing on it. I love. The way his, his kind of funny baritone he does that one part of the song. Uh, I wish I knew the words better. I, even though I sing it. If I started singing it, I could sing it all, all of it. Yeah. But, but, um, Invite Dave for some karaoke. He'll sing it go, for I'll you. There you go. I'll sing it all for you. That's my job. So this was the beginning of the Abbey Road medley. This was the first song okay. that starts the medley. So, yeah, this one. And uh, the medley was referred to by the Beatles as the big one. That's what they called it. This mm -hmm. is, that was their, they didn't call it the medley. They didn't call it the Abbey Road medley. They called it the big one. It's a, by the way, the medley is a great way to end an album. Like it's, mm -hmm. it's like, what can you do on your final album? Exactly. What can you? Do? Well, we're gonna. And I think that's what they wanted. I think, yeah. Uh, I think the it takes you on a real ride. They liked it for two things. They liked it because uh, it let them get rid get rid of a bunch of unfinished songs that they mm -hmm. had sitting there in their Beatle bag. So if if you're finishes the Beatle, you you have songs you you can't carry on carry over with you, and so you know it let them use up songs that had yeah they you know already had practiced many times i mean 12 of the 17 songs that are on this album were played during get the let be let it be get back sessions okay so they weren't really bringing a lot of new to this album what they were doing was kind of recycling the old yeah. into it into a new you're form. packing things up yeah. you're moving packing like, things up yeah one sweet dream get in the limousine yep time to get away from here um and so, a sweet dream came true today but it's not it's not over you know yeah. we're doing other things yep well in may Okay, so let's say this, this song is the kicking off point. But even before that, Lennon describes he and Paul working on a side-long side long song montage in a, an interview in, in the NME in, in April. Mm -hmm. So even before this, the song was recorded in May. So even before that, obviously, they, they were already starting to figure out or work on... It's probably Paul's idea, let's be honest. But, it's, but uh, they were starting to work on the idea of, of bringing all these songs together into, into a medley. And uh, yeah, so George Martin has also taking some credit for it and i'm sure he has some credit in terms of of uh, of putting it together harmonically or melodically like because a lot of it a lot of it resolves itself so if you knew like if i knew more about music and could discuss it more more then this podcast would be three times as long three times as long <laughs> but i could discuss it more technically then we could talk about how there's you know an a major that's resolved in this right. part of the song and da, 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 throughout the medley you know so i'm sure that george martin had a hand in all those sort of sort of elements of it but Chris Thomas, who was assistant producer on this album and worked on White Album, he has described Paul sitting down and playing for him the entire medley on the piano to give him a sense of what they were thinking of, you know, not, not all of it, but elements of it, just so he would get a sense of, 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 you know, how it would work. Right. So there you go. So the next song in the medley? The next song in the medley. Oh, I just want to say one. Oh, no, go ahead. One other thing was the biggest trouble they had with this song well one was when they were first recorded it it was recorded at olympia studios when they first recorded it it just it ended abruptly it didn't have the one two three four five six seven part yet okay so that was added later so it just said it ended and then they added that part later and then the uh, the trouble they had was having it transition into sun king 
Like, how are we going to have sun, you know? And so at first they wanted a long organ note. So they tried just having a long organ note kind of play through, you know, sort of sort of appearing midway through the end of the song and then going into the, but that didn't work. And so then Paul brought in a bunch of tape loops from home that he had made. And he kind of, he kind of constructed this kind of a, a soundscape, you know, with the birds yeah. and bells and, and, the, and then the, the crickets chirping. And then that kind of, brings us into this next kind of soft song that was very influenced by this song by Fleetwood Mac called Albatross, uh, the guitar part in, in Sun King. Okay. And so it just has a sort of natural sound to it that brings us into this next song, you know, uh, inspired by a, by a, a nature song. So, yeah. Nice. So yeah, Sun King. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's weird just reading the lyrics, like here come the Sun King when we've had, here comes the sun. Yeah. Yeah. It's a little, Oh, that's, I don't know if that should go, but it works. It works. It works, works great. fine. It's different. It enough. works great. And okay, what makes this song? Well, besides, tell the, me what makes this song. Besides the Peter Green influenced guitar part playing of the song Albatross, Fleetwood Mac, um, is the uh, I just love when it starts going into the mock, the cod, uh, uh, Spanish and Italian. Uh-huh. As it's singing out so much fun, and uh, actually the song was originally called Here Comes the Sun King. By the way, just so you know, that was the original title. Oh, okay. They changed it. Uh, and then what's kind of fun when they're doing the vaguely Spanish Italian sounding stuff is they put in they put in this uh, Liverpool Liverpool nonsense phrase, which is uh, Chica Ferdi, Chica Ferdi, which they pronounce as Chica Ferdi in the song. Right. So it goes Mi amore Chica Ferdi Parasol. And, and it's kind of like it's just a nonsense phrase, kind of like saying na 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 to someone. OK. Yeah. So they just they couldn't resist the putting little <laughs> in jokes in like that. So they added it into the song. Good. And um I think one other thing about the song. I'm always happy when they get to do comedy. <laughs> Feels like you know, they, they love they love the goons. They love that kind of thing. I mean, that's one of the nice things about George Harrison getting to work like later on, you know, and help the Pythons and whatever. Mm-hmm. It's just like, yeah. yeah, that's good. Like he's so comfortable in that world. The Beatles are. Well, George Harrison felt that the Pythons took over the spirit of the Beatles as the Beatles ended. Monty Python became the next sort of Beatles. I won't disagree with that. Yeah. Um, Wait, do we have to do then all the Python stuff now with the Beatles pad? Yeah, that'd be fun. Oh boy, <laughs> I'll tell my wife clearing my schedule. <laughs> uh, what the thing? What is one thing I think is interesting about the medley? Yeah. is it wasn't the, all the songs weren't edited together. Like they were edited together, but eventually. But, but several times, to- but several of the songs are pl- are were were played together in the studio, so they were recorded as two songs as one. Oh, okay. So Sun King and Mean Mr. Mustard weren't edited together; they were played together at the same time. And just transition live in the studio. Oh, then, really? Yeah. Okay. So it's it's interesting. And what's curious is, with, well, with me and Mr. Mustard is, uh, or no, it's more Polythene Pam. So yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that yet. But okay. So me and Mr. Mustard is a pretty old song. Oh, it, we're now onto me and Mr. Yeah, Mustard. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's a this pretty is, old song. It's interesting because we're doing the medley. So are we? Uh, yeah. We're not having the we're having the smooth transitions. Okay, yeah, let's go. Right. Yeah. Into me and Mr. Mustard. Go. Yeah, yeah. So what's interesting about this song is it dates all the way back to Rishikesh. So this was. This was demoed. Oh, okay. This was demoed at Kinfons when they were demo- demoing all the material for White Album. John demoed this this song, and at that time in the demo, uh, Mr. Mustard's sister's name was Shirley, which he changed to Pam so that it gave some continuity to the medley. So, you know, because he's a smart guy, <laughs> you know. I just the song's great. I it don't is. think you can say very Sleeps much about it. Sleeps in a it. hole in the road. Yeah. you got to feel for that guy. It's fun. Ringo's drum playing is absolutely fantastic on this song. Yeah, and yeah, it's just great. This whole whole thing's great. Keeps the ten bob note up his nose. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he gets taken to see the Queen. How he shouts out something obscene. Yeah, it's the only place he's ever been, right? So yeah, yeah. he's a mean old man. <laughs> what a dirty old man. Yeah, exactly. 
Yeah, I love that song. Um, actually, I just love the whole medley. So, and so then we'll. Well, that's a nice thing. Again, I like. I, I just like uh, dirty old man thing. Again, you know, we'll talk about it in the uh, when we get to the movies. But you know, uh, once again, uh, was it Paul's grandfather in there who's always like yeah, the clean, yeah, old clean old man? Was yeah. because the actor who played was always called a dirty old man in the other show he did. Yeah, yeah. Dirty old men were just funny back then. Step to you know, you know, yeah, you know, it was funny. Mm. Uh, Italians, uh, Spanish. Uh, dirty old men. Yeah. We're going through all the funny stuff in this. Well, Steps and Son was the uh, was the uh, was what Sanford and Son in yeah, the states was based right. on. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. I think of what the word would be based on. Based on would be a good way to say it. Yep. Yes. So uh, Polythene Pam and she came in bath- through the bathroom window. These songs were also played as one complete song. So they just transitioned live in the studio between songs rather than edit them together after. Now Polythene is a mispronunciation of uh, plastic. Poly, type, polystyrene. Right. It's, a, it's a British. It's not a mispronunciation. It's a British term for that. Oh, is it? The okay. same way they say aluminium rather than aluminum. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. And they spell it differently then too. Aluminium has an I in it. Okay. Between the I U M. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what? Uh, maybe we should all just say the same thing. <laughs> Let's all just take a vote and see which one we want to go with. Apparently, based on a real person. Uh, yeah, a lady I heard named, that. Yeah. yeah, a lady named Pat Hodgett, who was a cavern cavern dweller, liked to come to the cavern. Yeah. Who actually ate polys polystyrene like i'd eat plastic right i want to know like how long she lived did she uh a strong taste for thermoplastic apparently okay fair enough you know i guess there's i mean when we've got it you know the singer is doing heroin i can't really judge her for eating a bit of plastic i suppose yeah i can't get on my high horse so that's how she she was known she was known for that and so she was uh she was called polythene she was called polythene i think uh, he, I think he was taking his taking inspiration from a few different sources for the song. Okay, but I just like that she wears a jackboot and kilt. <laughs> I think that's great. It's a good look. Yeah, it's a great look. Why not? Absolutely. And um, I hope I hope her digestive system worked out okay. Once again, another Rishika song. So it was also demoed during really during Kinfons. Yeah, that's how old it was. Like I need yeah, it back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right away. So they're really We're using cleaning up some out material. the cupboards. Yeah, exactly. why yeah. not? Yeah. And what's curious about the song is even though it's was done like a live transition between songs like if you listen to uh the medley only the only the vocals mm-hmm. which you can hear on youtube there's a vocals only i'll post it on the facebook page but there's a vocals only uh like version of the medley so you can just hear like a little bit of the you hear some of the music but most of it you can only hear through the headphones as they're singing and uh when it gets to polythene and pam you can hear john says he either says oh listen to that now or oh listen to that mel referring to mel evans their their roadie assistant and then he laughs, and then he says, oh, look out. And then he says, he's, and then he, it's cut off, and then it goes into, she came in through the bathroom window. So it's very strange. Mm. So I don't know what what was happening there, like, because it was done live. So he's not referring to something done while they were playing music, because he wasn't singing at the same time. He, the vocals would, would have been done after, obviously. So it's very strange. It's just a strange little bit in, in the song. But it makes it kind of exciting, because they're doing that part as they're building up towards, she came in to the bathroom, come in, so there's a sort of, weird yelling going on which is kind of fun yeah and then she came in through the bathroom window starts protected by a silver spoon yes yeah kind of weird song it is a weird song let me say i i wish more bands would would do this which is like take the songs that weren't their own songs and stick them all in a medley and let's see what happens yeah that'd be kind of a fun thing to do it's just how do you mean weren't their own songs well as in like you know a lot of these feel like they're not full songs okay like just enough of a an idea of a song or just the good bit of a song it's weird and just merge them all together and let's hear a medley of you know because a lot of bands i'm sure have the bag of songs that are kind of half-baked 
And like, just take the half-baked bit and put it yeah. in a medley and run it all through. I mean, admittedly, you're not the Beatles. I get that. But... Well, the problem was is that in the past, if John or Paul were stuck for a middle eight, didn't know where to go, they would turn to each other and give each other the song to, to look at and figure out a, a, an answer to that problem. But at this point, they weren't communicating anymore. Mm. They weren't... They didn't have that working relationship any longer. Like, basically, John is almost on none of George's songs at all. And that's not necessarily his fault. He was away after the accident for a while. Right. Uh, but basically, you know, they did the songs together as a basic track, and then it was up to each individual musician to add their own stuff to it after that. You know, they just weren't working together. Yeah, they're you know? all on their own. Yeah, They're all on their own. And so, you know, it wasn't John, George, and Paul doing the overdubs for She's So he- I-, I Want You, She's So Heavy. It was George and John, John doing that. Paul it wasn't there for that session, mm-hmm. right? And that was the same for other sessions. And so, yeah, there's this, so these songs that were, you know, needed that little clue, needed that little different eye looking at it and saying, what if, you know, what if we went up to this chord here instead and you sang this part? You know, they didn't have that. And so the songs, you know, and then there wasn't the energy to put into these songs to finish them either. You know, that the Beatle, the band's winding down, we're doing this last album. Eh, I don't feel like, you know, finding, figuring out a middle eight for, for this song. So, We'll do the medley. It's great yeah. for the medley, right? There's a bit of this, too, that feels almost like a dream, and you're getting near the end where you're about to wake up, and now we're just having random dreams mm-hmm. quickly. Yeah. We're just really, really, we've been in the mm-hmm. deep, and now we're just, a lot of quick things happening, one after the other. Things are shifting, merging okay. into other things. Yeah. 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 It does have that dreamlike quality to it, for sure. So apparently this was based on a true story, to uh, somewhat based on a true story, because uh, what happened was Paul had a... some As dreams are, sometimes. Paul had a... Well, everyone. There's these girls called Apple Scruffs. They hung around Apple. They hung around Abbey Road. They hung around the, the band, the members' houses. And one day, a bunch of them broke into Paul's house when a ladder was inadvertently left in his garden. And they pushed, they pushed up to the bathroom window, which Paul had left ajar. And they broke in that way, like stole some of his clothes and took a bunch of pictures, including yeah. one that was very important to him of his father. And so he had to like kind of negotiate with, with other Apple Scruffs to try and get it back. And so that's kind of de- it's sort of detailed in the song a little bit, uh, kind of cryptically, and 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 also not if you know what I mean. So yeah. it's kind of talking about a little bit as a jumping off point, but the song itself, I mean, is more almost dreamlike in the way it's structured and the way it tells whatever it's trying to say. And I've never understood it. I actually never liked the song that much. Okay, I like it. Fa- I've I've grown to like it more now. But when I first started, I was kind of like, hmm. I was actually maybe because I was expecting more from such a crazy title. Oh, okay. Yeah, and then yeah. you, you just got this kind of weird dreamlike kind of song where she's sitting in a lagoon with a silver spoon and, you know, I don't know. Yep. But the one thing is, I've always thought of my friend's dad from this song, though. Why is that? Because he used to be a, he used to be an English policeman. He would break in through bathroom windows? No, but he used to be an English policeman and then he became something else. And so whenever he says, you know, at, near the end of the song, right, there's a lyric where he says uh, something about uh, quitting the force. Uh, so I quit the police department yeah. and got myself another jo- a yeah, steady job. Steady job. That, Why yeah. is that a steady job? Working the police department seems like That's, a steady job to me. I guess not. But fair enough. I guess not. And though she tried her best to help me, she could steal, but she could not rob. Yeah. <laughs> so it might be just a reference to the fact that the same girls that stole for him, he was having to use to try and get the picture back. So they were helping him find the picture, mm. although they were also involved in the robbery. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Interesting. Yeah. Because there would have been no difference between all those girls who were there. Any one of them would have taken advantage of yeah. the moment to go in. Good uh, good tip, though, about ladders and yards. Mm-hmm. Don't leave them leaning against the window. Or maybe get a dog. A dog will uh, solve that problem. a dog. Problem. He had Martha. 
What was that, his dog? Yeah, Martha. Dog should have been protecting the house better then. Not very hey, good. Martha, get on it. She wrote a song about you. And she was a sheepdog. We know how efficient they are at perfecting. Per- yeah, maybe preventing. she would have just herded the groupies <laughs> into a into just right. a bin. That's right. Like, just put them over there into a lot. Like a sheepdog? Yeah. They're very good at preventing uh, sheep from being stolen by coyotes. Well, so. none of his sheep were stolen. So, uh, good job, dog. So, continuing... To Golden Slumbers. Continuing Golden Slumbers, another beautiful song. Very, very sweet. Apparently... And if we're going with the dream idea, it fits in <laughs> with that quite well. Uh, uh, the lyrics were taken from a, an, an actual song. Some of the lyrics were taken from an actual song. When he was visiting his dad, he, was, he saw some sheet music on the piano, and it was this song called The Cradle Song, written by Thomas Decker for a 1603 play called Patient Griselle, mm-hmm. which is uh, another variation of the Griselda, the Griselda story, if you know that story at all. Do you no, know the Griselda story? Not really, no. The Griselda story, it's the story where this king marries this woman, and to test her, to test her patience, he starts playing tricks on her. So when she has a baby, he tells her he sold the baby. Okay. Really, he just took the, sent the baby away to somewhere else, and the baby's being raised. Right. And then when she has another child, a daughter, he st- takes that baby away from her. Okay, this has gone beyond trickery. And then, <laughs> and then it's really it's, just, it's a terrible story. And then he, by the way, good on him for still uh, yeah. having her being able to sleep with him and after then, he sold the first baby. Then he divorces his wife, and then he tells her that he's getting remarried. Okay. And she has to do something at the at the wedding ceremony. Yeah. And when he shows up at the wedding ceremony, he she has to meet the bride. Right. The bride is her daughter that was taken from her. And then he reveals that he didn't kill the children. Right. And that he actually loves her. Right. Ha ha ha. Isn't that the greatest joke you've ever heard? And then she and then she walks she, then walks, she takes a silver hammer. Well no, I was gonna say, and then she walks out and she meets a guy named Job and he goes, You think you got problems? Let me tell you. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So the moral of the Griselda story is yeah. what? Like I don't know. then he just remarries her and goes, You're the perfect wife. Yeah, I guess By so. the way, you're beyond child rearing age now because clearly your daughter has grown into a full woman. Yeah. And we don't live this long back then. Well, time to die now. I know it's a terrible Point story. Point made. It's a terrible story. So uh Decker adapted his story from the Clark story from Canterbury Tales. Okay. So here's an adaption of that, which is a similar story, similar story to the Griselda story. So the original lyrics for the song are, Golden slumbers, kiss your eyes, smiles awake you when you rise, sleep pretty wantons, do not cry, and I will sing a lullaby. Rock them, rock them lullaby, care is heavy, therefore sleep you. You are care, and care must keep you. Sleep pretty wantons, do not cry, and I will sing a lullaby. Rock them, rock them lullaby. This is probably sung by the mother to her children as they're being taken away from her. Right. Uh, so obviously McCartney borrowed pretty liberally from that. Uh, but I think that he, like, he made it sound like it was kind of like randomly saw this and he randomly wrote because he said, I couldn't understand the sheet music. So I just made up my own song for it uh-huh. and borrowed. But I personally think that he already had music in mind. He already had like a, an idea in mind and he adapted it to what he had already conceived of for this part of the part of the medley, you know. Now, you think that he's saying with this, like, once there was a way to get back homeward, once there was a way to get back home, there is no way to go back home now. Don't cry. Yeah. But we we can't go back because the yeah. earlier part of this, you know, we're talking about we're yeah. going in a limo, we're taking off. Well, this is, yeah. This we're is going carrying forward. On. We can only go forward. Yeah. So what we do is we go, we have the medley part. We have the first part talking about the early days of the Beatles. Yeah. You know, and then we have this kind of almost like a kind of a celebration of the of the Beatles songs themselves, a medley of their songs. Right. Then we come back to the to the end of the Beatles again. Mm-hmm. We can't go back to that time. Right. There's no way to go homeward. We can't. You can't go homeward. Well, this almost see, this almost feels like he's singing this to the the listeners, to the fans. Mm-hmm. You know, who would always go like, "No, guys, stay together forever, stay together forever." And it's like, no, we can't go back. 
But I'm going to sing. In a way, because I'm singing part, you this lullaby. But the next part is sung to the Beatles themselves, so I, I kind of agree with you totally there. Okay. Because the next part of the song is. So you think he's singing this to himself? Because it seems this is being sung to someone. It's being From, sung to the perspective is yeah. the singer singing this to someone to himself don't, and to the other Beatles. You think he's telling yeah. himself, "Don't mm-hmm. cry." Yeah. yeah. I don't know. I this. I'm going to stick with my. Because the next part. Well, okay. What does the next right. part mean then? You have uh, to make it. You have to make it make sense. Then. Okay. Boy, you're gonna well because we're t- we're taking care of a lot of business here. Like you're talking, if you're you're closing shop, yeah, you know, it's almost like getting your affairs in order. Yeah. Frankly, yeah. it's like who are you leaving behind and what are you doing and who are you taking with you? Yeah. Well, I'm going in the limo by myself and I'm going over this and I'm separating. Yeah. Now over here we've got the fans, we've got the listeners, we've got the people who love the music, and I think to them we're saying you can't go back, but don't cry. I'm going to sing you this song. It's going to be all right. Yeah. Over here we go. And now I'm back to the lads. And now we're now we're now uh, we're disagree. now I we're think all. The song is all a piece, though. Do you think it's all okay? Well, it's all. I think it was it's, sung as a piece. It was recorded. No, as no, a piece. I, you're taking these as separate things. I'm thinking. No, I'm not. When, when a family is breaking up, yeah, um, you've got to. You're dealing with different things. Like sure. the husband is going off this way, but you got to now talk to the children. You're talking to the wife a different way. You know, you're 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 dealing with all the different things, the, yeah. all the different aspects. And to me, that feels like it all is part of the same piece. It's <laughs> not separate. But go ahead with... Uh, see, no, yeah, see, I think it's all all to the Beatles. It's all to his own bandmates. I understand singing, that is what you think. And he's saying to them, you know, you will, we will never be the Beatles again. Not only will we never be the Beatles again, we will never be as popular as the Beatles again. Mm. We're going to have to carry the weight of this... Okay, we're now to carry we that weight. Okay. Well, it's, it's part of the same song. They were recorded at the same time. Okay. In fact, for the longest time, up until the point when they started organizing the medley, they actually had the same same title. So they, for, for like a couple of months, gotcha. they had the same... The same title, but um, they're both just called uh, Golden Slumbers. So, so yeah, he's and he's saying to them, you know, we will never be, we will, you know, we will never achieve these heights again. You know, what made us great was us as a as a four parts of a of a whole. You know, and now we're going to be one part and separate, and we will never be as great again. So we'll have to just carry this with us. And it's not bad, you know, it's in a freeing in a way, but at the same time, there's also a weight to it, you know, that. That will will always be Beatles. Mm-hmm. And in the middle of my celebrations, I break down. Yeah. No, I can see. I can see that. I can see that. I mean, uh, of course, you know, he's still carrying. You know, both of them, uh, Ringo and Paul, carry the weight to this day. People ask him about the Beatles. Yeah, of course. This day, like uh, constantly, the questions are about that. I mean, but they're still both living their lives and doing their thing and of course, moving on. Of and... course, but quite frankly, everyone they meet wants to hear Beatles stories from them, without a doubt. Everyone they meet wants to hear Beatles stories from them. They might not obnoxiously ask for them every time they meet them, but I mean, they want to hear those stories. Mostly, yeah. yeah. I'd say mostly, especially Ringo. I think, I think, I think Paul, again, for a brief period of time when he was going through his little Michael, no, I don't say little, that's condescending. Uh, when he was going through the Michael Jackson period, I think there was new audiences that he was, uh, that he was tapping into, you know, who, you know, would have been aware of the Beatles, but that might have been older folk music, whereas, you know, what yeah. he's doing with Michael Jackson was now. And, you know, the guy is still doing music now to this day. I mean, that's one of the things I really like when we're talking about this. You know, it, it makes it not sad to me that, like, he just had a hit song, like, yeah. this year. Yeah. So it's, you know, sure. they still are who they are. It was a, yeah, it was a, not a bad. Yeah. He had a minor hit song. He had a minor hit song. Yeah. How many hit songs have we had? No, I'm just saying, <laughs> compared, <laughs> yeah. compared to being a Beatle, though, right? Like, yeah. You know, compared to the world conquering, you But know, do you want that, like... 
Like, do you want to be? I mean, no. look at something like the. I'm not saying he wants it. Okay, I'm just saying it's something that you have to be aware of. Right, but let's look at like you. let's look at the Who or the Rolling Stones. Yeah, they did not break up. I mean, members have passed away and yeah. things have changed, but they still are who they are. Is that better? You know, they're, is that better? I mean, they're still the Rolling Stones. Yeah. They're still they're never going to be more yeah, than the Rolling Stones. They still are the Rolling. Even though Mick Jagger has gone and done his own thing and. Everyone's done their own stuff, I'm and not, Roger Daltrey has done terrible movies. I'm not criticizing what Paul's doing. No, no, no. I'm not saying... I'm just saying that what Paul is saying to the other band members is you will never achieve these heights again. Right. And now retro, now that we have the luxury of time... He hasn't achieved those heights again. But the other thing about that is yes. if you were still with the band, yeah. you know, theoretically, if the band was still together, is that necessarily I'm not the saying best thing? I'm not saying it's better. I'm not saying anything. I'm yeah. not making a value judgment. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying... What he's saying to them. Mathematically. What he's saying you're to saying them. You're saying mathematically. No, no. I think you're mis- misunderstanding me. Okay. What he's saying is that we will never achieve these heights again. He's but not saying depends. this is to be regretted. Okay. But it's it depends. Not, he's not talking in terms of regret, though. Right, right, right. Not even talking regret. I'm talking like when you're talking heights. Like when you talk heights, that's a weird thing in our, in artistic terms. And I think like... No, there's ways to... You can... You can you can objectively look at the Beatles' career and say that the Beatles never... That in terms of solo artists the Beatles never scaled those heights again okay in fact their careers were a slow loss of 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 popularity Mm -hmm. you know over time they slowly from the time they were Beatles to to now right their careers have been popularity yeah if popularity is what you care about like look you when you're even in terms of artistically though artistically really artistically yes, yes Name a song that Paul McCartney has written that is as good as Hey Jude or Yesterday or any of the other many songs that he wrote as a Beatle. Mm-hmm. Name one song he wrote as, as a as a member of Wings or a solo that was the, as here's good. Here's the thing. It's not... You can't. To, okay. Well, you haven't let me answer, but fair okay. enough. Okay. Asked and not answered. Uh, you've got a cir- circular argument here going on here, and it'd be tough to break your loop. My, to me, to me, what I'm thinking is like, if you're an artist, right, yeah. and you're Paul McCartney, sure. and I don't know Paul McCartney, maybe one day I'll, I've met Pete Best. That's all I've met. Uh, so, okay, so you're Paul McCartney. Yeah. Now, you're as a young man, what you've done is you've become the most popular band in the world. Okay. Okay, you have artistically reached these amazing heights. Sure. Now, as an artist, yeah. what is your, what do you do? Do you keep going for the for the huge? Do you keep going for the elaborate, or do you then make it small? Do you take different di- divergent paths? Do you try you do new it, things? You can do whatever you no, want. No, but you're judging these things as like saying stuff that he did with Wings. There's nothing he did with Wings that's as good as what he did with the Beatles. But but artistically, maybe what he needed to do then was the things that he did with Wings, the that's things fine. he did with Michael Jackson, that's the fine. things that's he's a totally doing different, now. That's a totally different. Criteria. But you're judging it as like you can you that's can. That's a totally different criteria, though. Okay, but you're you're throwing you. He can't still with, has to carry the weight of being a Beatle. Yeah, no, he has whether to carry the wings, weight. Whether he's in well, that's, wings, oh no, now you're now you're pivot arguing here. No, what you said, <laughs> okay, what you said was there's obje- no, no. Let's you said on. there's objective ways of judging let's, art. Let's move on. Okay, that's let's the way on. it's going to be. Well, All right, not this way it's going to be. I just feel like we both we no, are both arguing strong, from different no, sides. You've made, yeah, but you've made some strong statements there. We both argue from different sides, and we're not we're not going to meet ever. So let's just move on. We can talk about it after. We'll talk about it after. Okay, fair enough. We'll have a we'll have a dinner time <laughs> talk about it. Nah, probably won't. But hey, you know where we can talk about it as on the message board. Sure, Let us know what you, you think. There you go. All right. So from that song, carry that weight to the end. The end, originally known as ending. Was it originally called yeah, ending? It's called ending. Oh, bold choice, changing that to the end. And so, what's so weird about a lot of these songs is that they're like me and Mister Mustard, Paul Theme, Pound, and stuff like that. We're doing we're done before or done after ending, mm-hmm. and they were done after Golden Slumbers. You know, like Golden Slumbers and stuff like that were done, you know, like maybe a third of the way into the album sessions. They were doing 
like already preparing the medley but doing the the ending songs first which always seems strange like how planned things are like like you kind of I don't know we plan things I guess but it it just feels like when you listen to Beatles albums you're like man this is amazing that all worked out for them <laughs> not gee they sure spent a lot of time like figuring stuff out and well, thinking about it and yeah. planning and plotting and I mean we have obviously over the course of this and this is something we can talk about in our final episode talk about themes and what have you but one of the themes definitely has been uh, recognizing when mistakes are not mistakes and then embracing those and yeah. you know you you using them for the best sure yeah so that retro retroactively you look back and go like clearly this was the only path that could have been taken and of course it wasn't yeah you know yeah no it's yeah it's interesting what's well it's great about this song is that it's a time it's a, a time for individual moments within the song as well yeah. so we have Ringo's solo the only drum solo that he ever did so they did seven takes of the song he did seven different drum solos and this one the seventh solo was considered the best but what's interesting is that in the on the original mix it had uh guitars and uh i think a tambourine or something playing at the same time and then those were mixed out so okay. it just left only his drums. So I don't know if they're trying to trick him. They're like, oh, don't worry. It's not a solo, Ringo. We're going to have guitars. We're going to have a you know, tambourine playing. You know, you know, it'll, it'll be really good. And then after they got him to do it, they just took all that stuff off and just left him bare. You know. <laughs> but also, Any has, idea how he felt about that afterwards? Has he ever commented he never, on he, he has never liked that song. Like, okay. never liked that solo. He doesn't like solos. He doesn't think that's a drummer's place in a, in a, in a song, is to have a solo. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's kind of funny. And then... Um, the other part is there's there's guitar the guitar solos are each of the Beatles playing a guitar solo. Okay. So so it goes um, Paul plays, George plays, John plays, and they each have two bars to play. And so the reason Paul did that was because he thought that each of their guitar playing reflected their personalities. So you have Ringo's drum solo, then you have these guitar solos that reflect each of the players. So you have Paul's playing with his be note bending. You have you have. Um, uh, George's kind of slide guitar, Eric Clapton sort of influenced sound, a solo playing. And then you have John's very raucous, you know, uh, simple, you know, kind of rocking playing, mm -hmm. you know, and each of the kind of reflected them as, as musicians, you know. And so, and then, then you, then you hit the very end of the song. Of course, you have the, that simple four bars of the, of the, of the piano playing. And then Paul McCartney's magnificent final words, which, if the album had have gone to plan, would have ended the album absolutely mm -hmm. on those words. So, which I think are absolutely fantastic words. They are like, absolutely fantastic words, but I like how the album ends. And sort of to bring around that, what I said before, that elegiac sense of, you know, of ending of, you know, the sort of a celebration of itself. That's mm -hmm. what this album is. It's kind of a celebration of the Beatles as the, as a band, as what they were, you know, and sort of, this is what we were, this is what we gave you, and this is what we're leaving you with. Yeah. But Pretty but, close to perfect. Be, yeah. But because we can't resist who we are, we have to prick our own balloon absolutely you burst do. the bubble because you know what someone's gonna yeah someone's gonna and rightfully so and it might know? as well be us it might as well be you yeah because you're uh, you're funny guys and so what's interesting about her majesty was it actually was intended for the long medley it was going to be in it it was supposed to come between me mr mustard and polythene pam which is why it has that strange chord that starts it because what happened was on uh now i have to read my notes as usual because i can't sure remember thing. but okay on july 30th so about halfway through the sessions, they sat down and they took all the medley songs and they did a, st a stereo mix and they, you know, and they did, uh, they edited them all together and they just kind of, even though some like at the end didn't have vocals yet and they weren't all finished, but they just put it all together just to see, will this work? Mm -hmm. like, we don't want to get everything done and then get to the end and, and then realize, oh my God, this doesn't work at all. And so the, the original track listing was, uh, it was 
You never give me your money. Sun King, mean Mr. Mustard, Her Majesty, Polythene Pam. She came in through the bathroom window. Golden slumbers carried that weight. Then the end. That's how it should have gone. Right. But when they listened to it, everything fitted together perfectly except for one song. And so Paul just said to the, engin- the second engineer, whose name was John Kurlander, he said, just throw it away. <laughs> you know, just cut it out, throw it away. So he just kind of did a quick snip on it. But he had been told, his instructions were, never throw away <laughs> anything by the Beatles. Yeah. So what he did was he didn't have anywhere to put it. So he just added 20 seconds of leader tape to the end of, of, the, of the mix. And then he just added that on. And so, and so then uh, Paul wanted an acetate of it. And so they had a guy at Apple. So they had a guy at Apple who did their acetates for them. So right. the tapes went to Apple and this guy got the tape. And even though Kurlander had written on it, you know, don't use ending. This guy saw it, and I guess he probably had the same kind of instruction, you know, always use what's yeah. on the Beatles rocket. So he cut, he cut the Her Majesty into the acetate. And so then Paul brought it home and he was listening to it and he's sitting there and he's like, okay, well, that's, you know, that's good. Yeah. Flows really well without having Her Majesty there. That's perfect. And then the song ended and of course it kept, <laughs> the needle kept going on the acetate. And then suddenly there's this bing, which from the, that note, this D chord that was supposed to end Mean Mr. Mustard and bring us into Her Majesty. Yeah. So that suddenly just came out of nowhere, and then the song started playing, and he's just like, oh, that's great. <laughs> I cannot not have that yeah. on the song. So that's where it stayed. Yeah. And it was never never it's remixed. Joyful. It was never remixed or anything. And because Paul lives so close, whoops, sorry, everyone. Because Paul lives so close to um, the studio, it took him about five minutes to walk there. So he would always get there before everybody else. And so one day he got there a little early, uh, just after they'd come back from their summer holiday in June. And so he thought, well, I have some time. I'll just quickly do the song I thought of. And so he just sat down in three takes, did it. He sang and played the guitar at the same time, recorded it. Two tracks of an eight-track tape. Done. Done. It's ready for the medley. And then when he didn't like it, you know, it should have been gone completely. But instead, yeah, it's just that beautiful moment of just Beatles humor. Yep. You know, because what should end it? It shouldn't just be their their spiritual side, their solemn, the, the love they gave everyone, yeah. just the huge amount of... It- you know what, what they gave the world. You know what but, it feels almost like. Like we're talking a yeah. little bit about how it's a dream. It almost feels like you know a kid you're putting to bed, and uh, dad's there, and he's at the door, and he's telling you that he loves you, and you know something about love, and they just a, a cheap joke as he's leaving, <laughs> and it feels like ah we're fine. Yeah, everything's yeah. gonna be. It really does make you feel like everything's gonna be fine. Yeah, you know. All right, we're good. And then hey, where are we? We're at the we're at the end. We're at the end of the uh, wow. Done. This we're done. Amazing. Yeah. And it wouldn't be, I mean, the mixing session, the stereo mixing session, this album was only mixed in stereo. The stereo mixing session for this album was the last time the Beatles were ever together in a studio, all of them together in a studio. Right. Were they ever together in any other circumstance, aside from socially, maybe? or at, uh, uh, Maybe of... socially. I, I think um, it took a while because, I mean, it was a little while after Abbey Road was completed that Paul sued. He took the rest of the Beatles to court mm. to end, to officially end the band. And so that probably created some hurt feelings. Um, you know, part of his part of his suit was uh, the adding of orchestration to uh, the long and winding road, which he said the Beatles were trying to to wreck his reputation. Mm-hmm. You know, so there's you know there's some silly bickering and back and forth for a long time. I mean, whenever you see films of them later on, you know, they are hanging out, and there's usually at least two of them together sure. doing stuff. And like one of my favorite, you know, just quick aside things is like. You know, when you had Lorne Michaels uh, offering the Beatles, what was it, $1,000 to be on the show? Yeah, sure. Uh, John and Paul were both watching that in New York at the same time. Okay, okay. And uh, for, for a couple of seconds went, we should just go down now. We could. It's live. And then, 
nah, it's a better idea to talk yeah. about than to do, and they didn't. But they were hanging out at the yeah, time, watching yeah. it together, and got a kick out no, of it. I mean, and I love, I yeah. love the idea that they were hanging out watching that sketch. Like, I love that sketch so much more now that I know they watched it and had their own joke. Yeah, yeah, uh, about it. Oh, that's great. I mean, because yeah, before that, I mean, John wrote "How Do You Sleep," which was aimed at Paul McCartney. Paul McCartney wrote, you know, uh, was it very well? Thank you. Well, he wrote "Dear Friend," which was a very hurtful, very hurt song. You know, it was a, kind of a more of a ballad to saying, you know, you've hurt my feelings more than anything. And then, but he also wrote some songs that on round that kind of commented on, you know, everybody's going underground, everybody's, you know, which was kind of aimed at John and Yoko. So it's, you know what? I mean, went back and forth. here's the thing. Did you like all the sensitive songs that they did on their albums? Well, you don't get that without being a sensitive artist. Yeah. And a sensitive artist is going to get hurt and is going to hurt. <laughs> You know, yeah, that's true. You know, that's true. Hurt people, hurt people, as they say sometimes. But we got a lot out of them, and uh, and I, I and I'm, the show I'm, is very long. Yes, and I'm, it's very, and very long. It is very long, but it's our but it's our final album show. Yeah, I remember like one of the first things we said when we were doing, and we'll get more to this in our final final show. We're like we're gonna make sure each one of these shows is a tight hour. Tight remember hour. that? Yeah. Remember how soon that went out the window? So hard to so hard to not because there's so much to talk about to me. Yeah. Like not only not only the the songs and the trivia behind the songs which i know some people appreciate a lot but also just how we feel and what our experiences are listening to the songs and mm-hmm. and, and our in- impressions of you know whether we argue about it or not but our impressions of what it was like for them like what they were going through and stuff like that you know yeah it's interesting mm-hmm. you know and what's interesting i don't know it's funny because i'm just thinking about still thinking a little bit about our argument i don't want to get back into it but we come from two totally different views of creativity. i'm going to say debate over argument. Sure, debate. Well, actually, let's argue about whether it's a debate or not. <laughs> that's how so, Canadians argue, is like over the actual terms, and that's it. We have two different... The politest... We, we come from two de- different ideas of creativity. Yeah. And stuff like that, so it, it's interesting. So whenever we get into that, we always kind of get a little hot under the collar. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of fun. That's part, part of the fun of the show to me, too. And if you want to hear us argue about more stuff, Sneaky Dragon probably <laughs> is, your, is your go-to. We may take this up. Now, listen, we've been doing a lot of talking, obviously, not just this episode, but over the last... Uh, weeks uh, since we've started and we love hearing from you our final episode t- next the next time you hear from us we're going to be talking about the films yeah and then there our final one we're leaving it a little loosey-goosey yeah you know we're going to cover some bases that maybe we haven't covered maybe we'll talk about the origin of the show maybe i'll interview dave interview dave a little bit but we'd also love to hear from you so we want to hear like what your experiences with the beatles are you know i mean we've been talking about how we felt about songs where we were when we first heard, heard songs and uh, a lot of you have actually been writing us in or sending us um we had i don't even know how she did it but we had a a wonderful person uh, send in a a, a like a, 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 sounds, she said a, words. She recorded a wave file on her phone. And, there you and go. Emailed it to a wave file, and it was and, like the actual words. And, and thank it, you, thank you for that, Connie. There you go, we'll Connie. Sorry about that. I was blanking on your name. So, um, yeah, we would love to hear from you, and uh, we'd be happy to read some of the things that uh, that that you felt or your memories of the Beatles on our final show. And we're also open to questions or things we haven't covered. Yes. You know, if you think there's anything Dave hasn't covered, yes. Let us something let us know. Is there something that I've missed in this extensive trawl through the Beatles back catalog? <laughs> and I I'm, doubt it. And I'm very happy that Dave will now. Uh, it's it's sad that it's it's wrapping up, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, Dave will now have uh, a lot more free time during his week when he doesn't have to do all this yes. backbreaking research. My family will see me again. Yes, I won't be downstairs <laughs> avoiding everyone. Madly researching yeah. what Paul drank. There's another gentleman that's been pretending to be him for the last couple of weeks, <laughs> and the family is starting to that's catch right. on. That's Dave, Dave does not have a full beard. Dave that is was dead. Tip, yeah. Well, the rumor is Dave is dead, so he's been... <laughs> 
he's going to be my stand-in after I die. So. <laughs> Very good. So, yes, please, uh, if you want to um, write us, uh, sneakydragon.com is our website. Our message boards are there. Uh, we're also on Facebook, Completely Beatles. And remember, we spell Completely Beatles with that unnecessary A. It's one of those things Please that, so. you know what, There's, here's the benefit, here's the detriment. The benefit is, if you try to look for that name and put it in quotations, you will actually get us for sure. Yeah. Uh, but if you but you will more than likely spell it incorrectly and not get us when you're on Google. So, you know, we'll giveth, sh- giveth sh- taketh. To be honest, we'll show up if you write, type in completely Beatles as well, we'll show up in a search. Eventually, that's, that's absolutely yeah. correct. So yeah, please do write us. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, if you want to go on iTunes and rate, uh, our, our show, that helps other people to find us. Yes, it And, is. um, we more than appreciate your kind attention. Anything you more go. you want to say on this, uh, this leg of the journey wrapping up? I do not. I am sad that we are finishing the albums. I was kind of actually kind of looking forward to it, but now that we're here, I feel <laughs> much like the Beatles probably felt you're relieved that it's over, but at the same time, you're sad that you're moving on to okay. other things. Okay. Let us go drown our sorrows in French fries, my friend. Yes. All right. French fries sound good to me. <laughs> okay. All right. We will uh, see you all again on the next episode. We've got two more left. Next time, it will be The Beatles Films. Yes, it will. It's been Completely Beatles. I've been Ian Boothby. I've been David Dedrick. Take care. Bye, everyone. <laughs> Choose it.